No matter how they toss the dice, it had to be the only one for me is you and you for me. So happy together. Welcome to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for loving. You're listening to what was the number one song, April 10th, 1967, which is important for a reason we'll get to in a little bit. But first, say hello to Christian Whiskey. Uh, I I prefer if you guys just refer to me as Legume. Ah, I got that. I what? And with a love tagline <laughs> or two, maybe three, we have Kelly Wand. Wait, so it's not the super bad character? <coughs> Wait, who isn't super bad? McLovin. Oh, <laughs> good lord, I can't believe that went over my head. <laughs> Didn't go over Dingus's head. Dingus got it. Yeah, Dingus is dumb. Dingus is lowbrow enough to have understood that. I'm way highbrow enough to think it was retarded. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a do you have a tagline that might be more my speed, Kelly Wand? You'll like it. <laughs> That's cute. That's good. Uh, that might be, even if the third one sucks, I'm happy. So, what is the third, or is there even a third loving tagline? The mortar merrier. Yep. I'm glad we got the second one. Yeah. <laughs> God's all. No, I said do mix races so your kids turn out hotter. Hello, Jesus. <laughs> I like that. That was a more. Understood. That was more like an extended sort of promotional motto, kind of. That was good. Hello, hello Jesus. Yeah, it's a review. It's like a review blurb on it. Are there more of these? No. What? Well, in that case, let's go to Dingus, who isn't going to spoil Loving yet. Dingus, tell the listeners what movie we saw this week, but don't give anything away. That's going to be Kelly Wan's job in a few short moments. This week we saw Loving, Mm -hmm. a 2016 historical drama movie Mm. about the cost of building a home and a family. It was written and directed by Jeff Nichols, Mm. and it stars Ruth Nega. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Joel Edgerton, Ooh. Lano Miller, Will Dalton, Sharon Blackwood, Christopher Mann, Bill Camp, and Andrene Ward-Hammond. Loving is rated PG-13 for thematic elements. Uh, Wait, that's all? That's it. Not a word about smoking. Sorry, Tom. So, I'm really disappointed in the MPAA. Kelly Wand, is there anything that you're disappointed in the MPAA for excluding from that ratings? I'm impressed by that, mm-hmm. but also uh, I do confess it has some miscegenation, <laughs> uh, multi-generational vehicular mishaps, and Nick Kroll smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I guess you know who he is. Uh, Loving is at 79 on Metacritic. That's the average rating from various reviews. C+. The percentage of reviews that are positive, however, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's at 90%. Hmm. On CinemaScore... Haha. <laughs> There's no cinema score. I don't know. I didn't I'm not quite sure I realized this. Cinema score is only for uh weekends for, for the opening weekend of a movie. Like that's all that matters is who cares enough about a movie to go on the opening weekend of a wide release. What? Is that the A plus one? 
Uh, no, Loving didn't have a wide enough release that CinemaScore cared. Uh, CinemaScore just does wide releases, and it's only people who go on the opening. It might even be only on the opening night. No, because uh, we did a CinemaScore when we did a screening for Midnight Special. Well, they'll they'll do they'll do like test things, but when they release the actual, I mean, focus groups can hire them and whatnot. But when they release these actual uh, ratings. Uh, when they do the reports, that's what their claim is, is here's what we're measuring, people who cared enough to go on opening weekend. So it's literally a popularity contest. But, so even though the, the actual cards we had were CinemaScore cards, those don't count if it's a screening? Uh, there's no Midnight Express uh, on CinemaScore. Midnight Square Special. Website. Midnight Special, right. There's no Midnight Special on uh, on CinemaScore, no. Okay. So uh, yeah, Midnight Express. What was it? Was it actually? Yeah, it was Cinema Square. Yeah. Uh, excuse What's... me, Midnight Run. Like for instance, uh, <laughs> Kelly Wan saw Allied the, yeah. this week. It got a B on Cinema Score. Idiots are okay with Allied. B's hmm. low though. Here's something that makes me want to see Bad Santa Two. Bad Santa Two. Idiots hate it. It got a C plus. Wait, that doesn't mean it's good. That means no one liked it. It means idiots hate it. Yeah, but it's not its way Kelly Wan, I like movies that idiots hate because I tend to think. What do the smart people think of it? I don't know. Cinema score couldn't be. Couldn't it's only idiot opinions. Them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Moana, of course, got an A. That's about what you'd expect from a Disney princess movie. What did idiots think of Avatar? Avatar got. Oh, this is fun. Let's do a whole. Oh, got an A. A for Avatar. Idiots like Avatar. And Dingus, again, I'm not yep. saying you're an idiot. I like some movies that idiots like. I'm just saying if you were to narrow it down to that subset, which is what Cinema Score does. No, nope. hey. I'm, I'm the idiot on the podcast. Too. Nobody. I'm happy. I'm, I'm, Kelly I'm, not saying, sure. I'm not saying I'm a useful idiot. I'm just saying I'm an idiot. <laughs> You're saying if it had been called Bavatar, it would have gotten a B? Like the first letter is the only one? Well, only James Cameron will know. Um, Kelly Wand, I want you to now spoil everything that happens in Love. Man, I don't envy you this one. What are you going to do with a loving synopsis? That's my question for you. That's what I thought while I was writing this. Yeah. What the hell am I doing? A nice 1950s black lady, I think his name Renee Zoll. I'm pregnant. Loving smiles, tears up a little. Then he's all. But who? Some letters are all. Love Inksis. <laughs> Where'd the K come from? <laughs> Love Inksis? Love Inksis. I changed the G into a CP. <laughs> Loving's job is to slot mortar on three rows of bricks and then place a brick on the top of them on a building foundation in the middle of a field. (laughs) (laughs) I lean over to Tom Willis, the neighbor on the Jeffersons, and go, hopefully Trump can talk Mexicans into stealing all those wall construction jobs from us. Loving's other job is to stand near his black friends and watch race cars drive away from him. (laughs) (laughs) To celebrate his victory over the brick, he takes Renee to a different field. He pokes a stick in some grass and goes, this will be our bedroom. She's all, say what? He's all, yep, bought this field for us to live in. She's all, oh, this is the perfect place to build a house on. His smile droops. He's all build a house on since it's 1958 in keeping with the 10 commandments you're only allowed to marry people who have the same amount of taupe midichlorians in their skin cells as you 
unless you drive to your nation's capital, which in the view of some southern law enforcement is considered cheating. Although stapling a marriage license to your wall does provide some rights, they only extend to the walls. Also, shortcuts in general are frowned upon by the greatest generation. A local sheriff tries to talk some sense into loving after a few of his men courteously provide uh, free car service, (laughs) sleeping accommodations, and cuisine. While this complex legal matter is deliberated by qualified personnel, eventually a guy with a unibrow drags Loving into his office and cuts admirably to the chase. Mr. Loving, God made a mule a mule and a dinosaur out of frog DNA for a reason. Tarzan's white for a reason, boy. And don't be going and trying to post no bail for your wife again or I'll have to arrest every black person in this county. Now get on out of here and don't let me see that stupid white face of yours till Monday when the grand wizard, I mean judge, will hear you not say nothing while he sentences y'all to three days in jail between now and your court appearance in three days. Well, loving's all. It's a big deal, Jesus. Next day, his lawyer, Michael McKean's all. Don't worry, the judge is a friend of mine. I persuaded him at the cockfight last night to let you plead guilty. You're welcome. In exchange, he'll let you leave the state for 25 years or do one year in prison. It's what we in the corruption business call a win-win. McLeving's all. Okay, sounds great. The next day, their judge is all. Yes, this is my real hair. He angrily opens an empty folder and goes, since your skin color is dissimilar, I'm charging you $34 each and making you move to a city. Court is adjourned. I'll rise. They're already standing, so no one moves. Eventually bangs his gavel while everyone covers their ears and tries to block out the horrifying sight. To celebrate the court victory, the Lovings move to the Northwest's biggest city, Washington. Loving scowls at the neighbors. These black guys wear hats. Annoying. They're fancy new black landladies all. And these are stairs. Renee's face falls a bit. The city isn't what she expected. One night she's all. I think the baby's going to be here soon. Loving's all. Okay, so hospital. She's all, I got a cool idea. Two weeks later at midnight, Loving pulls by the side of the road and waits till a passing car makes a U and swerves up next to him. Renee's dad gets out, tiptoes over to Loving's car and goes, Hey. He peers into the back seat. Is Renee ready? Loving's all. Damn it. He (laughs) he sighs and drives back to Washington to get her. Two nights later. Hey, Loving, good news. Her water broke. Here, throw this sauce pan of water outside and go fill it with blood. Loving walks out onto the porch and slings the pan of water. Beside me, Jason's... <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Beside me, Jaden splutters drenched. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Get it, dingus? <laughs> he wipes off his face crying as Loving's mom hands him a towel. <laughs> Loving's all, thanks, mama. The mom's all, y'all not shouldn't have dot done what y'all didn't. <laughs> Loving's all, thought you liked her. She's all, I like a lot of movie characters, but it was wrong being what y'all wasn't night know how. She farts maternally and goes inside. He smokes a cigarette and stares at a fence post. His expression's all, everybody's a critic. The birth is successful in that a bunch of police cars show up in the morning and arrest the Lovings for having kids. 
the cop driving loving to jail snickers at him in the inter- in the interview <laughs> and goes Hi, you lucky boy. The judge's cross burning got postponed due to faulty lighter fluid. Loving's all. Room temperature. Ten minutes later, the judge from before opens the folder again and goes, Okay, this isn't my hair. Speaking of which, I hair by sentence all black people and Mr. Sweet Loving here. 25 years with my wife. The door, back door begs open and Michael McKean stumbles in, trying to sound out of breath. He's all. Sorry, Judge, it's all my fault. My clients misunderstood what I meant by leaving the state. You by hair. The defense pleads sanity. The judge is all, whatever. He bangs his gavel and eventually winds up paying child support. <laughs> Meanwhile, Michael Shannon leaves acting and gets a job as a photographer at Life Serial. <laughs> Say that line again because I think I laughed over part of the good parts. What? Michael Shannon, he leaves acting and gets a job as photographer at Life Serial. <laughs> he pulls up in his glamorous jalopy while Loving's on the barn roof, banging dents into his rain gutters and then pouring mortar on them. Shannon honks his horn, startling Loving into falling off and breaking a <laughs> finger. Shannon's all, Hello, I'm Michael Shannon. Life? Serial? No? He snaps a pic of the finger and goes, Actually, I'm really here to take pictures of your wife. She inside? Shannon wanders off. Loving shakes his head and goes, Just like his screen persona. That night on the TV screen, Aunt B's all, <laughs> Oh, B! Found alien pod in the swimming pool that's restored my sex drive. I feel Randy's a three legged mule. Watching from the couch, Loving and Renee cackle with delight. Loving loses interest, though, and passes out in her lap with his eyes right under her lit cigarette. <laughs> Inspired, Michael Shannon takes a picture of Loving unconscious in her lap. It soon becomes a famous billboard all over the nation with words under it that say, The Andy Griffith Show, Take Another Lap. <laughs> For your consideration, Francis Bavier is Aunt B. <laughs> Also, Smoke Winston. Renee Loving says, there, hell yeah. The next day, a car hits Loving Jr. while he's chasing a baseball that's chasing a dog. When Loving gets home, he sees the kid in bed with some bandages on his elbows. He's all... <sighs> Didn't mean to crash into him that hard. <laughs> Renee's all... I can't take this no more. We're moving back to the country. I'd rather he get hit by trucks full of moonshine or stagecoaches. Loving's all. Hey, how come none of our kids look like me? I'm just curious. But she's already driving off as suitcases fall off the car roof. One day, Renee's friends all. Y'all should write Bobby Kennedy. Renee walks into the bedroom, gets a sheet of paper, and writes... Dear Mr. Bobby Kennedy, I'm writing to you because... She nods, reads it over, puts it in an envelope, and mails it. (laughs) When she arrives home, the friend comes into the bedroom and goes, Wait, I meant Elvis. The next day, the phone rings. She's all, What? (laughs) Hello, Mrs. Loving. My name is Rick (laughs) Kroll. (laughs) 
play a lawyer on the league? <laughs> yeah, listen, Bobby Kennedy couldn't finish reading the line of words he wrote him, so he handed it off to me. We think you have a chance at the Supreme Court. <laughs> she hangs up and goes, Yo, Levin, the ACL wants me to be a judge. Loving's not very interested in leagues, but goes anyway to meet the guy. When they get there, they watch as Nick Kroll changes the nameplate on his desk, then sits behind it, folds his hands, and goes, So, like I was saying, I have a plan to get the state of Virginia to admit that the two of you are having monogamous sex legally. Now, my plan may be a little unorthodox, but I really think you'll like it. Since we're running late on fighting this by five years, I just motion that we get the two of you arrested again and hopefully give them the death sentence. <laughs> he shrugs cheerfully. <laughs> Loving's all. Why don't you just talk to the judge? From what I've seen, he'll love it. But Kroll thinks that sounds boring. Everybody leaves without deciding anything. Meanwhile, at work, someone thoughtfully gives Loving a belated wedding gift of a brick, an unmistakable symbol of the rock-solid foundation of marriage. <laughs> See, some people get it. They're trying to help. He carefully sets it on the ground for later. To celebrate, he goes back to the lawyer's office. Crolls all. Loving, I'd like you to meet another character. <laughs> this guy's really good. Genius. Just wait. <laughs> the new guy's hefty and dark haired. He shakes hands with Loving goes, Yeah, every time I go to the South, something shocks me. This last time it was the ceviche. Crolls all. Hey, good news. I'm contesting your case in the Supreme Court tomorrow. Want to go? <laughs> Loving's all. <laughs> he rolls his eyes. <laughs> Crolls all. Well, is there anything you'd like me to say in your defense? I haven't actually prepared anything. Loving's all. Tell him you love my wife. Kroll gets out a sheet of paper, looks for a pencil, borrows one off a guy in the hall, sharpens it, blows on the tip, then writes, Okay, tell them what? He looks up smiling. He's all, anything else? Nick Kroll wins the case. I can't stop now. Nick Kroll wins the case. It's not that different. Due to a very inspiring monologue off screen, after which Supreme Court Justice Scalia stands up, faces the assembly, and goes, I'd have settled for just hearing his wife's loved, but that was fine, I guess. She bangs her gavel. Everyone stands and applauds the gavel's technique. Some words are all, for seven years, nothing happened. Then Loving was killed by a drunk driver. Win some, lose some. Forty years after his death, someone asked Renee what she thought about him, and she was all something like, I miss his ass. He fucking took care of shit. You feel me? Damn. Then she died. I look over at Spike Lee sitting beside me and go, yeah, I have combination skin. The end. 
Man, that Nick Kroll, uh, Kelly Wan, you continue to, for a guy who says, uh, I don't like acting, I'm no good at acting, man, you roll out some great impressions. What? Yep, you got what another the, one in your stable now. Congratulations. Yeah. What was the one you surprised us with earlier? Goldblum. No, you're Goldblum, you're Alicia Vikander. There was one a couple of weeks ago, Dingus. Bridges? Yeah, you're Jeff Bridges. Yeah, it's good easy. lord. Well, the Ben Foster is the one that's my favorite nowadays. Ben Foster. Kelly Wan, you need to, like Nick Kroll, you need to embark on a career as a stand-up comedian. <sighs> is that what this was? <laughs> a I don't like the standing up, though. Yeah, you can bring a stool on, on the stage. There you go. Kelly Wan, go first. What's your over-under for this, and what was your uh, overall takeaway? Uh, I went with uh, white guy, black wife movies. So my over was Mystery Men. With uh, William H Macy, and he had the um, the wife who was very supportive, and then my under was Omega Man, Charlton Heston. So you liked Mystery Men more than Loving, but you'd like Loving more than Omega Man. Well, I just thought it was a longer marriage. I thought they'd been together longer. <laughs> What's and the biracial couple in Omega Man? I don't think I've ever seen that. It's Charlton Heston. He's white, and then he meets a black girl who pretends to be a mannequin in a store, and then um, he meets like her friends, like a bunch of hippie kids. Oh. And then they take on the. At the end, she turns into one of the vampires, though. So then she's white. Oh right, Omega Man is is from I Am Legend. Richard right. Matheson's. Yeah. Okay. Right. 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 But she's uh, naked in it. It's a G-rated movie. So it was back when they just. No, it's not. Yeah. What? She's naked in a G-rated movie. There's new yeah. in a G-rated movie. I think so. Uh, I kind of doubt that. It might be PG. That I believe. Blood in it, he gets shot. Well, that's when Jaws was PG as well. Jaws would never get by with a PG these days, not even a PG-13. And it was PG. Right, because we live in troubled times, more hysterical times. Well, that leads to my over and under. Uh, I uh, I am just head over heels in love with this thing. I, I thought this was a remarkable movie, and I especially feel that it's really relevant today in the wake, of, at least for me, in in now that uh, Trump has won the election. And mm. I feel really, uh, as a normally optimistic liberal, uh, I want to point to three movies that I think are relevant to watch these days. Uh, the middle one being, as far as the quality of the movies, I'm not doing much bracketing here, but they are in order. The, the worst of them that I feel you should watch, which is an under- with, with loving, and we talked about it a bit on the podcast, is uh, Desierto, uh, a movie where I feel it's important that we understand this is how we look in parts of the world. This is the image that we are putting forth. They can make a horror movie in Mexico about uh, Americans being uh, bloodthirsty murderers who just want to kill Mexicans. You know, that's horror that sells uh, on one of our borders. Uh, loving, I would put in the middle as someone who is a little dismayed with what happened politically. I think Loving is a, a beautiful story about when the system works, about what happens when this country is broken and how it fixes itself. And what I particularly like about it is that Jeff Nichols didn't shoot it as a procedural. This is kind of an anti-procedural. Uh, and a movie that I feel is better than Loving that I kind of find comforting to watch these days, uh, Dr. Strangelove, just for the absolute absurdity of the political system on a larger scale. Uh, and if we can bounce back from that, uh, I think we should be okay in the long run. So those are my, those are my over-under. I think Dr. Strangelove is a slightly better movie than Loving, which I think is an incredible movie, which is far, far better than Desierto. Dingus, what are your over and under 
for loving. I think you like so far you would be pound for pound the biggest Jeff Nichols supporter on this podcast. Uh, probably that would be true. Yeah. Oh, has that changed? Oh uh, no, no, it's not changed. I don't think I liked loving as much as you did, though. Uh, I like it plenty, but I'm not head over heels for it the way you are. Uh, but that might deal with the other movies that I saw um, at the same at around the same time. Um, and watching it again, uh, I, I don't know. I just don't think I'm head over heels for it the way you are. But I, I like it a, a whole lot, and I think it's got a great deal going for it. And the things that I would the, the way that I would describe that as far as an over under concerned are uh, a couple of movies that are based around historical events, but you know either play um, sort of fast and loose with the facts. So my under would be Argo, and part of the I, the reason I would put Argo under that, and I, I, th- I don't think Argo is close to as good a movie as this is, but one of the reasons that made me think about this is because of the, the picture at the end, and the pictures at the end of Argo, uh, where you're sort of, you're treated to the actual photograph in, in Loving, and you're treated to actual photographs of the people in Argo against the people that they were cast with. Um, which I thought was a really interesting way to do that. Uh, and I like a lot about Argo, but we talked about how it, it sort of, uh, plays around with the dramatic, with a certain amount of dramatic license. Um, and the movie I would put over this, uh, would be along the same lines as why I like loving so much, uh, would be the movie Capote. Um, because I think Capote is about a character dealing with a situation, um, not about the situation itself necessarily. And one of the things that I really like about loving is that, um, it's not about this huge weight. Uh, well, it, it, it's about the weight of history pressing down, but it's not focused on making it a procedural, as you said, Tom. Uh, it's more about their lives. It's about, it's a love story. Uh, and it's about the, it's about, um, a man <laughs> building a house <laughs> and how long that, takes him to build a house. I mean, it for me, it, it literally is about a man who who buys a piece of land and builds a house and how long it takes to do that and how his wife or um, how she keeps the family together as he figures out and they figure out together and it turns out she's the brains of the outfit, um, get to build that house. Um, and the other things that are going on, uh, you know, the weight of history, the civil rights movement, you know, going to the moon, these things are happening while they're living their lives and they have to live their lives. They have to put food on the table. They have to live their lives. And that's what I really, really like about this movie. Um, not, you know, I guess another director could have made a, a dramatic courtroom dr- drama uh, instead. Um, but that's not what this movie does. And that's one of the reasons I really, really like it. And I put Capote slightly over it because I just, I love the way that Capote seems more of a, a character epic to me. I think is how I originally talked about it when we talked about our lists that year. Uh, and I, I love the, the struggles that Philip Seymour Hoffman portrays as he's doing Capote and how it kind of ruins his life going, or it doesn't ruin his life, but maybe it's just his character in dealing with, in, trying to understand the story and bring the story out for his own. I mean, he's a much, he's such a selfish character, but for me, just a fascinating character. Um, but I just, I appreciate the way that movie is made more than this one. Uh, okay. Let's, let's talk the actors real quick. Uh, <clears throat> Dingus is it. So Kelly Wand, what 
you guys just know Ruth Nega from Warcraft? You didn't watch Preacher? You haven't seen a movie called Isolation? Wait, who's she in Warcraft? She's the queen. She's the main queen Tamriel or whatever her name is. Oh. I mean, they don't give her anything to do. She just kind of sits there and bees. Let me just say, I saw Allied the day after this movie, and Brad Pitt's supposed to be in love with someone in that movie, and there wasn't one scene in that movie where I thought... I felt like he would, that character was in love with the other character. And in Loving, I never doubted that Joel Edgerton's character loved her. So I thought it was like really good. Well, let's then talk about uh, yeah Joel Edgerton because I think it's uh, the performance of a career for the guy. I think the guy uh, – Like all of his I, I like No, not like all of his performance. I liked the guy before. I liked how you know boisterous he was in Great Gatsby. Uh, Dingus and I both remarked on – I think he really stands out in uh, Midnight Special – um, mm-hmm. He's just done solid work in the past, but this is a serious like this is like a serious performance. This is one of those things that Anthony Hopkins can do, where he disappears into himself, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just so quiet and subtle. Um, I mean, Ruth Nega I think is amazing anyway, but yeah. I just think that I, I will never see Joel Edgerton the same again. I just think he he really proved himself in a way that I never thought I'd see from this good-looking Australian sort of leading man, former stuntman type guy. Uh, so I forgot it was him, like when it started. Even it's that kind of performance, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, it just he just it he. Those left. are hard characters to do, even. Well, and and like you said, the the it's feeling that they're in love with each other, the the warmth between these two characters slash actors, I mean that practically just you can almost feel that on your skin coming out of the screen. It is, yeah. it is just it's almost palpable the way that they look each other, the way they touch each other. Uh, sometimes before she answers a question, she'll look to him. Uh, sometimes, you know, when he's going to agree with something that she wants, he agrees as if it's the most natural thing in the world to do. Just their 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 relationship and how it's expressed by these two actors is phenomenal. Yeah, and it's so pure. That they don't notice that they're risking it. Like they, he takes heat for it from his family members. But like in the beginning, it's like it doesn't occur to it doesn't occur to either of them that it would matter to anyone else because all they see is each other. Mm. No, you don't think so. I I, I disagree with that. Yeah. Mm. I, uh, but the, that's that's a different issue than the the performance. I, I think that. Wait, what are you disagreeing with? Like that? That's the strength of their. I think. That, well, no, no. I that 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 they're. I, I guess maybe I maybe I heard you wrong, but I think he they knows just exactly. Don't seem... I think he knows exactly what he's getting into. Um, he might not know the scope of it, but it's not like they're gonna like la la la. Let's let's go. Let's, I mean, okay, let me because I, I want to ask you guys a question, and it'll get to what this thing that Kelly I think is. Is trying to say here. Um, there's a, a scene. I, I I can't believe. It. Come on, Ruth Nega. You guys, Dingus, had you seen her in anything else? No, I, I honestly All right. no. I, I don't know where to put her. I mean, other than the worker. I honestly. All right. There's a there's a terrible series uh, called Preacher, which is based on a dippy comic book yeah, that Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg uh, developed for TV. It's horrible. It's terrible. It's a big mess. Maybe you have to be in the comic book. I don't know. But there's a there's a blonde, sassy, Texas badass chick who's in the comic book, and Ruth Nega they cast in this part. She's almost like a superhero. We're in she's Tulip. She is Tulip, and it's, it's mm. she's just brash and sassy, and she's got these badass action sequences. Um, and Preacher just lights up every moment she's on screen. The woman is amazing. I saw her 10 years ago. She And you guys are going to laugh at this, but this is really what it is. 
Imagine the movie Alien set on an Irish dairy farm, and she's the Ripley. There's a movie from 2007 called Isolation, which I heartily recommend to anyone who likes horror. A guy named Billy O'Brien who's done a couple of good movies since then. He shot this movie called Isolation. It's got a great cast, most of whom you will have never heard of. Well, whatever. Most of whom at the time, nobody knew who they were. Uh, one of them went on to become Essie Davis, who we loved in Babadook. Uh, Ruth Nega was one of the main actresses. Sean Harris is in it. Uh, some great character actors. But Isolation is great, and I remember her from, from then. And she's just amazing and preacher. Uh, I understand she's on that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. thing, which is the only thing I've ever heard about that that makes me want to see it. But I think she's just stunningly good. Yeah. Because she's quiet too. They're both kind of quiet characters. Just quiet and expressive. Very expressive. Yeah. yeah. So getting so, so I want to ask a question that I think we'll, we'll get into what you guys are talking about here. There's a moment fairly late in the movie where they have moved back to Virginia, and he's gone out drinking with some of his friends, and the 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 case has proceeded enough where it's it's got national attention, and one of his friends, who he probably hasn't seen in a while, is telling him, you used to, you know, you've got it hard now. Now you know what it's like to be black. Now you know what it's like to have it hard, but you have an easy out that we don't have. You could just divorce her. And Joel Edgerton just says, divorce her, divorce her, and he kind of laughs, and then he looks pensive, and Jeff Nichols, for whatever reason, wants to hold the camera on him as he looks pensive and zoom in a little bit. And the music is playing, and it's for whatever reason, it's an underlined moment. You know, the filmmaker is underlining this reaction. Do, do you guys remember the moment? Yeah. And if yeah, so, and he says, "Yeah, I'll divorce her." Yeah. I mean, okay. So, what make of that moment? Yeah, because I I found that puzzling. Um, I I'm curious what you guys make of that moment. What I make of it is the moment that happens after that, um, when he goes and he breaks down, um, because that's. That's impossible to him. I mean, I, I think that he's he's sort of staring into the middle distance to, and and saying that is sort of a not yes, that's what I'm going to do, but yeah, I'll divorce her. As if maybe me saying that will make that that thing make sense. But then he goes home to her, and this is a moment. Isn't that right after that where he, yep. he yeah breaks yeah, down I can take and he starts I can crying and she puts her arms around him and this is where what you were talking about earlier, Tom, just a few minutes ago. Um, is is one of the wonderful things about this movie is the balance in their relationship, is is the way that they respect each other so much, the way that he might say no we're not going to do that and she goes with him and and another time he might say we can't afford that and she says yeah we're meeting with him on Thursday and that's that I mean it's not it's not like a man beating down a woman or a woman being sassy to a man it's just them making decisions and understanding where those go and understanding their vulnerable points and understanding what the others need it's this awesome thing that happens in the movie that i would call anxiety trading uh, trading where where they make they make allowances for each other in the relationship where where one has anxiety about a certain thing and they have to trade their anxieties in order to well are we going to go back home to have the baby back home are we going to move back because uh, our kid got hit by a car that that's going to put more anxiety upon me and different anxiety upon you and the two of them as a couple understand how to do that how to how to trade their anxiety in that moment where he goes home and he breaks down and he actually starts crying and she holds him. I mean, that's a powerful moment and so powerful for her and powerful for him as well. I think this is a beautifully balanced relationship as far as performances are concerned. 
I love the moment when he comes home and she is giving an audio interview and there's a camera set up in the living room. Yeah. Uh, and she's obviously enjoying it. And he says, can I talk to you? And they go out on the porch and you think it's going to be the moment where the husband says, you know, get them out of here. We're mm-hmm. not doing this anymore. And he kind of, he kind of like rants and makes it clear that he's not happy with it. And she just kind of says, okay, that's fine. And then she goes in and she continues. Yep. Like it's not the scene where the husband is going to shoot down the wife. Because she's doing something he doesn't like. Uh, it's that great balance that you mentioned, Dingus, because you he's expect just, he's going to he's going to he's going to say, "Get him out of here. We're not doing this." And mm-hmm. that's just not their dynamic. <laughs> and he's going to put his foot down. But, he, but the the wonderful thing about that is he doesn't say, "Can you come out here?" So he says, "Come on out here." And then she comes out there, and then she and it's exactly like you said. She says, "Nope, yeah. I think this is a good idea." She just goes back in because she knows he's going to follow her. And then, like a little bit. Hangdog, he comes back in and sits down in the rocking chair a little bit later as she's doing the thing. I well, okay, yeah. So, uh, so Kelly Wand, I want to ask you then because I, I wonder if that maybe is what you're talking about because I have an interpretation as well. The scene in the bar where his friend has just said, "Hey, you can just divorce her and you're fine. You're out of this," and the camera holds on him and zooms in. Uh, what do you make of what is he thinking? What's going on with that moment? Why did Jeff Nichols want to linger there? That he's contemplating it until he sees her again, and then he. He can't do it. So, what, well, what did you say before that Dingus disagreed with? Because I, I, I think it kind of might get to. Well, do you remember what you said that Dingus took, took issue with? That there, well, just what I meant. That they were that he was really surprised that anyone's caring at, at early on, and like they're not taking. So here's that. how I would I would support what what you're saying. Um, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when you said that, it made me think of my interpretation of that scene. Because the second time I watched it, uh, I, 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 that scene stood out. I was like, why is he holding on this scene? Uh, I think to me what Joel Edgerton is doing with that moment and what Jeff Nichols is either telling him to do or wrote for him to do or is letting him do, um, it then feeds, as Dingus says, into the scene where he comes home and he confesses, you know, I, I, I can care for you. Like he, he sort of cries out of this sense of anxiety and self-doubt. Um, but I think it then feeds also into the scene where they decline to go hear the Supreme Court listening to the case. And he goes out on the porch and Nick Kroll goes out there and he says, can I say anything to the judge for you? And he says to Nick Kroll, and it's the delivery is so important, I think. Yeah. He says to Nick Kroll, uh, tell the judge I love my wife. And he says it, he delivers the line as if it's the most obvious thing in the world to consider for this case. And he is bewildered that anything else would matter. And I think that's when his friend says, you could just divorce her. I think it has never occurred to him that that is an option, much less that anyone would think it's an option, that anyone would fail to understand how much he loves this woman and would therefore suggest you guys could just be not together. Like I think at that moment he's thinking, holy crap, people don't understand. There is no option here for me. I am with her. I will never leave her. I love this woman. Uh, and I, you know, this court case, I don't care. I just want to be with my wife. I love her. How can this guy suggest that I divorce her? Um, and, and does that, does that kind of when, when you talk about, yeah, and it's just, I mean, it's, it's, there's one of these hangups I've never, like, even by the standards of racism, I've never understood why it would matter 
to other people. Well, it even people it even <laughs> it even gets into the early scene when they're being so openly affectionate at the drag race, right? And it shows the white guys just sort of looking. We don't, and I love how tasteful Jeff Nichols is. By the way, there's so little like over the top racism porn. <laughs> the white guys could be looking at him because they just lost the drag race, or they could be looking at him thinking, "Ooh, why is that black guy, that black girl that, both. Why is that white? Yeah, or both. Exactly. It's not necessarily. They're looking at him because, I mean, obviously we interpret, yeah, it's because they're an interracial couple, but also they've just lost a drag race to this guy. Well, I think think it's clear that it's the racism thing because the the camera looks at them and looks at the two of them being affectionate. And all I could think of in that moment is these white guys are seething because this white guy is with a black girl. Now, let's just think about how these white guys would react later on if it were a black guy over there with a white woman. I mean, it's 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 a different dynamic altogether. They would beat the hell out of him, but they're just angry. I think I don't think there's any question that it's not just the race; it's them looking at him, looking at him kissing her. Uh, but, but what I would get to though is, it, I think what Kelly Wand is saying is that it doesn't even occur to him to not be publicly affectionate with her in front of uh, a bunch of white guys yeah, right. who, they're, yeah. who they're vying against. Um, it does not even – he's not the least bit circumspect about demonstrating how much he loves her because it is to him, and, and this character is – and I don't mean this in a bad way – a very simple character. Mm-hmm. It is to him uh, just a fundamental truth of who he is, that he loves her, and it doesn't occur to him that it might look weird. Uh, and you know, obviously, he's aware of it, and and that that bit that Martin Sokas has with him, saying, you know, you don't, you were born out there in Center Point, you don't know up from down, you guys are so mixed up. Um, that there might be something to that as well, is that he was not raised in an environment where white women don't go out with, or white where couples don't go out with mixed races don't go out with each other. What, or he, let me push back a little bit on this. Let me push back on that a little bit because of the scene with his mom and because of something that comes up that is said multiple times in this movie by various characters. Um, and so I, I just want to push back on that a little bit by this phrase, you knew better or you should know better or you knew better. I mean that's said multiple times, including by his mama in that scene uh-huh. on the porch. You knew better. And, you know, she seems to be, and I really love that performance, by the way. Yeah, she yeah. seems to be, her name is, I think her name is Sharon Blackwood. Um, she seems to be pretty hands off as far as what she says to any, I mean, he comes in after being away and she's like, go get some water on the stove. I mean, he's, this is a big deal for him co- coming back home and her first words are get some water, get some water going. Um, but, but that, this idea of you should know better, should he? Well, if you remember, simple. Are you saying he's too simple to know better? I mean, uh, other than the fact that his father was uh, was employed by a black man, as uh, as um, Celeborn says. uh, You mean (laughs) Dingus? Sorry, (laughs) not everything is Lord of the Rings, Dingus. Most things are. I mean, is he just simple, or is it? So here, Dingus is what I, I the 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 speech that the Martin Soka speech was is kind of like the Greek chorus for racism, uh, and I kind of appreciate that Jeff Nichols is like, okay, we're just going to deliver this. We're not going to. One of the things I love about this movie is not racism porn, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But if you remember, uh, Celeborn's speech is 
maybe you didn't know better. They got you all mixed up. I mean, Celeborn mm. is basically justifying to himself, how is it that a white man cannot understand this as a deal? And he does say, you should know better. And then he looks at him for me and says, maybe you didn't know better. And that's when he has the bit about, you know, sparrows are with sparrows, robins are with robins. Um, and I also think, I wonder, I mean, I'd have to go back and look at that moment, when his mother says, you knew better, I, I, I don't think he does. I, I mean, I do yeah. think there's a well, simplicity she, on one hand, but a simplicity on one hand, but a, a, a purity on the other hand. Go ahead. But the sister says it to him too. I mean, her sister. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. He, he gets it gets said to him at least four times in this movie. You, you should know better. Yep. Or you knew. You, or not, it's not you should. It's you knew better. You yep. knew better. And, and and she, I'm sure his mom never said, "Don't go out with those people." But that's the thing is I don't if if he, if he knew better he wouldn't be with her he doesn't know better because he is he so did. in love with her and I I, I think it, and that's what that moment is when with the you could divorce her and he's like divorce her divorce her and he laughs at it I think it just doesn't occur to him and again this is an interpretation thing well, Nichols didn't write it into the script but what I got from some of the dialogue and from his performance was it didn't occur to him that that was ever an option that that he would not be with her that. They were were not mm-hmm. that the connection between them was not something that was basically almost divine or decreed by the universe or their natural right. Um, I, I just think, and yes, simplicity, purity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I don't think he did know better. I don't think he ever did. He wasn't the kind of character who would consider breaking her heart to make her life easier. But you know, they, with it, with a more, I think, complex, maybe intellectual examination of this issue, that might be something that a character would struggle with, and I don't think he ever did. I, I, I disagree that it doesn't occur to him. I, I think that he just understands a higher or a more certain moral cause—not a moral cause, but he, he has a more—he has a moral certainty about what is right and what is wrong. And it's not that it doesn't occur to him. He knows this isn't right. What you're doing isn't right, and he knows somebody has has uh, has talked. Somebody in this neighborhood is talking. He's standing there on the porch, looking out, and it's that moment in the neighborhood, you know, where he knows somebody's talked, and he's looking at the various houses. And I love the way that Jeff Nichols shoots this. He's like, he's looking at that house, he's looking at that house, and it's like that moment, you know, in any neighborhood where some it could be something stupid, like somebody let their dog crap on my lawn and didn't pick it up, or or somebody some some kid messed with my car, or 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 vandalized something. You go out to the 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 street and you look at the houses as if you can divine from looking at the houses which one of these people betrayed me because he has a sense of of right and wrong he has a sense of this is wrong it's not like he's just pie in the sky like why would anybody do this i don't understand he knows it's wrong what they're doing he knows it it's not so, like you should know better it's he knows it's wrong but he knows they're wrong uh the uh, a way you could describe his performance, this is one of the things I loved about it, is there's this very whooped dog quality to it. Yeah. Uh, and Dingus, what I would point out in response to that, the scene where they have to pay the court fees for this this so for this law when he is told this 3663 for each of you, mm-hmm. uh, he does not react with any sort of outrage. Uh, and Jeff Nichols wants us to see this scene too. He just gets out the wallet and he, he pays the money. And yeah, sure, you might know that it's wrong, but I think there's such this whooped dog quality to him um, that he is not going to express moral outrage. Uh, he's not that kind of character, I, I think. Uh, to him, all that matters is that he lo- he loves his – not necessarily that he loves his wife because I think this is where uh, 
this is this is a, a Jeff Nichols ism, I think. So much of his character, and I think I can imagine why Jeff Nichols wanted to tell this story, is this is a story. I think as you mentioned, it's about building a house. Uh, I would agree with that, but the way I would characterize it. It's about a family, and I think it's it's important that the first words of the movie are "I'm pregnant." It is about two people who love each other, and beyond loving each other, are are going to create a family. And part of that is, as you say, definitely building a house. And some of Jeff, Nich- uh, Jeff Nichols' movies certainly take shelter. Uh, Midnight Special are about the enormous responsibility that comes with having to support and protect a family. That anxiety, and you use the word anxiety uh, trading dingus with the, the the people who support and protect that family. Um, so those scenes where he's looking around, uh, they also play with you know they they demonstrate to us that he's fearful when they're living in Virginia that people are going to come up to the house. You know he thinks that somebody who might be just going fishing is following him home. When he sees his brother-in-law tearing down, coming fast like he normally drives, he thinks that there's there's something terrible going on that someone's coming to get them. Uh, I think Jeff Nichols partly is fascinated by this character for how much he experiences that kind of anxiety about protecting and supporting a family and how difficult that is. Um, so, But he's such a whooped dog. He's got such that quality to him that I uh, – yeah, it, it, it's – obviously he wants to protect them, but he's, he's not the kind to express moral outrage, I guess, because we as the audience you know, watching this – Obviously, you're thinking this is ridiculous. You know, how can it be against the law? How can a state exile two people? That that also struck struck me as yeah. ridiculous. They don't have that sense of moral outrage because he is a whooped dog. He is he was raised without these racial divides being clear. He was raised maybe not knowing better or knowing better. Um, doesn't seem paranoid in the early scenes. I mean, he's, he's, he nails the well, he doesn't. to the wall and goes, ta-da! Well, you know, you know when he nails it, uh, mm. the moment that – do you remember this sequence? Yeah. Uh, so he comes home, and his mother says, the sheriff's looking for you. Uh, and there's that great dialogue there too. I was thinking about doing. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do good writing, bad writing, but everything's good writing. That that right, that little exchange about uh, what did you tell him? I, didn't have, I forgot what the specific nature of it was. It was like four lines back and forth, and it was just so down home, folksy, and uh, just good writing. Um, but when he hears the sheriff is looking for him, he goes in and he hangs the marriage license up on the wall, thinking. That you know, when they come in, he can point at it, which is exactly what he does, uh, and it of course doesn't do any good. But it's in directly in response to the sheriff looking for him that he he's hangs, expecting them. That he hangs the license on the wall, yeah. Which and I guess still, gets more to what Dingus is saying. Like he, you know, yeah, that, he knows that, why they're looking. And the whole movie, by the way, is kind of justifying that paranoia, that anxiety. Uh, yeah, the state. Doesn't like what you're doing. The state wants to run you out of the borders. Uh, you know what you're doing is an is is to some people in the government is a violation of God's law. You know you, your children are bastards. The very thing you're wanting to do, the very thing that began this family, uh, is illegitimate. Um, and of course that would make a man paranoid. And they never once agree to that. <laughs> like they never back down. Uh, back to to what the what do you well, mean? Well, he never goes. Oh, that is wrong. Well, right, he right. Plead, he right. pleads guilty. Yeah, I but mean, he does that for for practical purposes, but but he doesn't believe it. Right. Okay. Uh, so do do you guys 
agree with me though when I say it's not racism porn? And do you, do you kind of know what, what I mean? What do you by mean that? by racism porn? I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm, what I was wondering, and I, I hope that it is historically accurate that he actually did tune cars and they did races because at first I was thinking, okay, we're at a race. This is about race. Um, but I hope, but, <laughs> but there's no like, you know, Jeff Nichols doesn't have somebody throw a brick through a window. He has somebody place it gently on a seat. Um, so, so there's not that there's, there's like one mild, uh, threat of rape, but it's, uh, the, the white sheriff like threatening, like I should have him be in here with you with a big black man. Um, but other than that, there's, there, I'm, I don't know what you mean by racism porn. I mean, there's, there's a couple of moments that made me gasp, but I don't know what you mean. Uh, Kelly Wanda, like you, like you said, you know, Mississippi Burning is a Dry great white example, season. Uh, where it's a movie about how uh, at the at the center of it is outrage about racism. Uh, this movie came out at the same time as a movie called Birth of a Nation, uh, which is a play, of course, on the name of the D.W. Griffiths movie. Uh, uh, I forget the actor's name, but he directed it and he starred in it. He wanted to make a movie about the the Nat Turner Rebellion, where this this former this slave rose up and killed a bunch of white people. And Birth of a Nation is pure, unmitigated, just dripping with cruelty and malice uh, uh, racism. And the whole point of this movie is so that you will maybe cheer for Nat Turner when he rises up and murders these people. Uh, that is, to me, racism porn, fetishizing oh. at the expense of all else the cruelty of racism, which I freely grant is cruel and is terrible. Uh, but to make a movie that just wallows in it, I, I would consider racism porn. And it's not always bad, by the way. Mississippi Burning is a pretty cool movie. Um, but so is Django is the, isn't it like Django's racism porn? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I would call yeah. it more more uh, accurately slavery porn. What uh, about Blood and Thunder? Twelve Years a Slave. Then is that racism porn? Uh, slavery porn, yeah. sure, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but th- this movie, I think, like you said, Dingus, there's no, you know, n- a bunch of white guys don't beat them up. Nobody throws the brick through the window, like, like you're saying. All of these things, these expectations that he has, that we, by the way, share as an audience, uh, these things don't happen. You know, people right. don't. Dr- I mean, the cops do come up and arrest them at, the, at that point, but the the standard scene where he's going to get beat up and called, you know, a, a nigger lover or whatever by a bunch of rednecks, we don't get that. That movie is not going to be about this. This movie, unlike racism porn, it is not dark. It is not bleak. This movie is not cruel. Um, And I I really admire that about it. I admire a movie that can make me think about how horrible racism is but can also make me – Really love people and really be happy about humanity. Uh, you know, fuck the state of Virginia for, for this. But this movie is about how the state of Virginia was an idiot and yeah. got put in its place by the system. Um, and it again, it's not a procedural. And while it's telling me this story, it is showing me this beautiful, amazing, just flawlessly performed uh, uh, love between these two characters. So, uh, is it more about marriage equality in general than racism? Well, as for what it's about, I mean, I think a bunch of things. Like I said, I, I really do feel Jack Nichols. Uh, Jack Nichols. Uh, Jeff Dude. Nichols responds to the, the the idea about anxiety as a father. Uh, Dingus, when we saw Midnight Special, I think he he talked about how when he had his son, that is inspired like his script for that. Um, right. Right. Uh, and so I think it's partly about that, and yeah, it's partly about you know I think it's hugely relevant to the issue of of same sex marriage. 
um, which it took the Supreme Court long enough, but just last year, uh, the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's constitutionally protected as well. Uh, I think it's also about racism. Uh, I think, and I think it's about, you know, caring for a family. Um, but it doesn't stretch the facts like all the racism. That's the thing is, yeah, Birth of a Nation has to have Jackie Earl Haley chewing the scenery, being just all but twirling his mustache. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure that stuff was awful. And I remember when we saw 12 Years a Slave, and I kind of wished that it didn't do all that silly mustache twirling, even though I know there were some horrible slave owners back then. Uh, you know, I, I, that th- this movie didn't need to do that. Um, it's the thing where they were probably just brutal men, but they were really boring too, but just like brutal dumbasses. And so that gets morphed into like the Michael Fassbender slave owner. Oh, oh in, in terms of slavery. In 12 Years a Slave. Well, I think part two, what, partly two, what, what, is going, what is going on with this movie and why it has the luxury of not being you know, dark or, or bleak or cruel is that they do live in, you know, he was raised in a mixed race environment. It's not like they're trying to live in the middle of a rich neighborhood or something. Uh, and then they finally have to live out in the woods uh, away from everyone. Um, so they have the luxury of not being in an environment where it's constantly being thrown in their face uh but they also the thing too like in in not in their racism form like they didn't seem to have like lame lives like we saw the hype like the the low points but they seemed happy like in the intervals yeah yeah like they mostly got away with it like it's good like it wasn't just like most biopics tend to like exaggerate the depressing parts. But you can't sort of dramatize how terrible it was just yeah. because the audience feel better. Like aviator. Uh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> um. But, you know, it's uh, they, they kind of got by, and she probably, there's weeks where she forgot about the Bobby Kennedy letter. And then it would, it would oh, my God. That's a, could you imagine that letter being sent to Jeff Sessions? This is our new <laughs> attorney general. <laughs> All right, let's talk, let's talk about the Nick Kroll in the room. <clears throat> <laughs> Who wants to defend him? Because I think I can do it. All right, let's have you go. First of all, what's the issue? Why would I even bring that up? Let's have one of you guys lay out. What? What? Why would we talk about this? Which I, part are you talking about? <laughs> How I read it? You mean? No, no. no your no. Nick Kroll was great, but I, you know, what, obviously, uh, have, can, is it worthy to have Nick Kroll playing this part? Uh, and I, I can imagine people saying uh, he didn't work for them, and that's fine. But I have a justification for it. And here, Diggis, is that is that the case for you? Like, uh, you and I know Nick Kroll from a few different places. Right. Uh, so when he showed up on screen, I was like, "Whoa, is that Nick Kroll? Yes, that's Nick Kroll. Huh? Let's see where this goes." Uh, so, Diggis, did it? Was it a net positive or negative for you, one way or the other? Uh, I was really excited about it at first because I like this kind of casting. Uh-huh. Um, and I kept trying to justify it. Um, I actually, one of those, that moment where, uh, he goes into the office and swaps out his name plate, takes all the things off the thing uh, and puts it in. I love that moment just as a moment. Just, I, I love that. That's one of those little best miscellaneous thingies I put together at the end of the year that I just love the way that works. That the way that this, 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 that whole office sequence where he's like, he said, I could use my office for a few hours. And then he goes back there, he gets it ready and he sits down and he waits and he folds his fingers. Um, and then he, he's talking to them and the way he talks to them is this, um, like the way you would talk to a jury. <laughs> he's, he can't, 
seem to restrain himself from saying lines to them so loudly. And it's almost embarrassing. Uh, and then after, um, uh, after Joel Edgerton says, no, we're not going to do that. He goes, yeah, I can see how that would have. <laughs> um, and I like how he kind of pulls it back a little bit, but then in the scene with his professor, he's doing the same weird loud voice and he never seems to, he just never seems to be there. And I get the idea of like, yeah, he's inexperienced. He's also going for the Supreme court. Um, he's going for the idea of it and how important it is. But, uh, he's just a little too enthusiastic about that aspect of it, but inexperienced. I like those things. I just don't think Nick Kroll can handle it. Um, so I, I think it's a little distracting for me. It It is uh, – yeah, like I, I do watch that and think, oh, remember how funny that drunk packing bit was that he does. Like I can't help it. That's in the back of my mind. Uh, so here's why I think that it kind of works for me, and it is, it, is, it is weird casting, and I would love to know more about how this came about. Um, <laughs> but you get – what I take away from it or, or what I use to justify how odd it is that he shows up and these things you're talking about, Dingus, where it is this – weirdly one-note performance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense that he has come in almost from a different world, that he's, it's a, he's acting for a different movie, he's a different kind of actor. Um, and, and for me, it kind of demonstrates the way that, that lawyers look at the world in a whole different way. They're like aliens. They're, they're, they're removed from the basic human emotions and turmoil that they often uh, have to navigate they they only think in terms of the law the the system you know there there's no word for a lawyer's bedside manner because a lawyer doesn't <laughs> have to take care of or even understand people lawyers don't need that they just need to talk about the law and so this idea that nick crawls like an alien <laughs> from from another movie or something gets at this idea that lawyers don't have to communicate with people they don't know how to have to Get, Especially uh, to those characters, they don't have to know how to communicate to him. exactly. Uh, and he is—he fr- is not at all from their world. He doesn't understand their world in the least, and of course, a little vice versa. Uh, so for me, even though it, it's weird and it is distracting, uh, I—that's kind of what I was able to use to justify it. Right. Uh, uh, I. Yeah, you remember, go in, ahead. A, in a real quick defense of how this movie deals with lawyers, um, you know. The, a lot of times lawyers are, are looked at as these like blood sucking hollow individuals. I mean, even Jurassic Park is like, the only one defending me is the blood sucking lawyer. Well, at the beginning of this movie, when he says, I've got a lawyer, or I'm going to get a lawyer, well, if you can, he goes, and when he tells her, I've got a lawyer, there's, there's this sense of like, oh, somebody's going to be on our side. And the lawyer is coming. The lawyer is coming. There's a sense of the cattle, the, the cavalry, not the cavalry, okay, the cavalry coming that, and when Bill Camp comes in, he saves the day. I mean, early on, the, the lawyer is the person that they're going to turn to. Well, we can't afford that. But in the early part, they're like, don't worry, I've got a lawyer. So I do like the way that this movie early per- portrays lawyers as not just these slimy individuals. Well, it's also sort of showing us, too, that this is going to be a movie that is concerned with the legal ramifications. You know, we're not going to thrust it in your face, but the legal stuff going on in the background is really important to the story that we're telling here. Right. So they're going to you're going to have to communicate with lawyers every now and then. I love the bit. So I. Boy, I, I think we all appreciate Bill Camp on this podcast. Yeah. Some of us more than others who have seen The Night Of. You jokers <laughs> are not allowed to be Bill Camp fans until you've seen The Night Of. Uh, but I love how it doesn't 
sort of lionize or, or romanticize him as, as a lawyer is he's doing his job. And when Richard Loving wants to thank him and shake his hand, he's just like, you know, I did my job. Don't make me do it again. Uh, I, you know, he's not going to be a warm, caring human being. That's not his role in this movie. Uh, he just fixes his tie and it's like, you know, I, I can't help you anymore if you do this again. Right, but he still saves their bacon. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. He does his job absolutely. Yeah. And that that thing you were talking about, the I think you you uh, described him as whoop dog. Yep. Yep. Um, when he doesn't uh, return the handshake, um, Richard just goes, "All right." Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, okay, that's not going to happen. It's not like he's taking great offense. It's just like, all right. God, I loved watching Joel Edgerton in this movie. It's just fascinating yeah. to watch his little choices like that. Yeah. And have the challenge of of acting opposite Kroll like that was like that was that sparked for me like oh what's he gonna do? Well, for me, just watching him like like the moments that he would shrug, and then when yeah. Ruth Negga would go, I, I got this, because it was very much like she was the brains of the operation, and and he was just like, I don't know what to do, and yeah, we're not gonna do that, I don't know, and then there she would say, Don't worry, we got this. There is a specific moment where I, I don't know if it's with Nick Kroll or, or if it's with both of the lawyers. They're in an office, and they're asked something, and she looks over to him, and he just shrugs one shoulder a little yep. bit, obviously uncomfortable with being asked to decide. And she just takes that. I mean her whole demeanor changes, and she's like, okay, we got it. I'm going to now it, sign us up for this. Like yep. He just gives her that little shrug, and it just – she just is – it takes – it's all hers at that point. It's just mm-hmm. like him tossing it over to her. Uh, For me, it's the it's the pivot outside the courthouse after the Virginia uh, Supreme Court decision uh, when they're walking down the street and the reporters are yelling down to him and he's like, uh, I don't have anything to say. And she does this. She's on the outside of him. She does this careful pivot to the inside of him to make it. I mean, her body moves to the inside of uh, of the sidewalk so that he is now able to be able to walk up. She walks them up and she answers the questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but she is controlling both his body and all of the information, <laughs> and and she's protecting him. She's actually protecting him in the way she can protect him. He protects her or takes care of her, as she says, in different ways. Mm-hmm. And that that's what I love about their relationship. Uh, how do we feel about uh, uh, Mike, Michael Shannon having a little part? Boy, he brought so much life to this movie. Yeah. Right, the right moment. It's a very un-Michael Shannon part, so I really liked that. Why do you say that, Kelly Wan? Because I have, I have. He's just so benign. What? I, I have this. Uh, He's a benign opportunist. Bad Boys Two, I think. There's some. Wow, that some, was. A, I did not expect that segue. Well, oh no, it's well. I, I can work this out. I just have to remember what the movie is. There's some uh, uh, like Michael Bay or Jerry Bruckheimer movie where he plays a, a KKK redneck. Literally, like a Ku Klux Klan member, uh, and he's a redneck, and it's because he looks like a redneck, and obviously he's the evil bad guy. I forget what the movie was, uh, but that must have been, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, nowadays, when I see him, it's almost like a casting spoiler, that of course he's going to be a trustworthy stand-up guy. Of course they're going to let him into their home. Uh, like I see him, and I'm like, yeah, he's a good guy. He's benign. He's great. He, he care- He's a caring gentle fellow <laughs> like and maybe it's just because it's jeff nichols casting him but i kind of saw that uh, as a casting spoiler like yeah obviously he's a good guy uh, and kelly one you don't think he's benign well he wasn't in premium rush 
Yeah, right, right, exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, I can't imagine him. Oh, and I guess he was that stupid uh, Superman villain. Um, oh, my God. Zod, now yeah, that Zod. I think of it. Yeah. yeah. Mentioned Which I guess Karen, even Karen in Take Shelter. Well, in Take Shelter, like he's a – like oh, he's I, benign, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean you, you, you sympathize with him. I mean he's the, the sort of emotional hook for the audience, yeah. Uh, but yeah, even uh, Shotgun Stories, the first movie that Jeff Nichols made that uh, Michael Shannon was in. Uh, he's super benign, just a super like just nice, great guy. So yeah, yeah I, I see him. It's like Dingus says, he just you know, it, it's just so comforting to see him show up in a movie. Uh, I love that. And again, you guys can't say you're Michael Shannon fans like me until you've seen the missing person. It's the, the second podcast in a row. I've had to tell you guys. Yep, yep. He just comes in at the exact right moment, and I wasn't expecting him. I didn't know he was coming into this movie. And it's so weird that, that he's the one for me because he just seems so I, – I saw him in um, uh, Unknown – oh, God, I saw him. Unknown Code. code complete up. Unknown. Thank complete you. Un- no, complete and, un- and he's just so dour and just uh, pensive and morose and brooding. <laughs> he's just constantly brooding. Um, and what a uh, dick. For him to be the guy who brings like a spark of life right when you need it in this movie and humor into their house. And we have another great uh, dinner table scene. I mean, there's a couple of dinner table scenes in this movie that are just fantastic. There's that there's that one in the house where where the the um, where her brothers are asking uh, how many races have you yeah. won? How much money yeah. have you won? And he's like counting on his fingers and everybody's having such a good time and there's so much life in the scene. And then in the, in the dinner scene when poor Michael Shannon is coming to the house uh, and he's talking about that, that beautiful picture from life with, with the legs dangling off the ledge. Um, I, lo- I just love the way Michael Shannon is so relaxed. He brings so much humor into the scene and, and the way he's just sitting there against the wall to create that, photograph that we're going to see at the end of the movie um i I love the way he plays it i love how how much life he just brings into the movie at that exact moment did you guys notice that in the real photograph she was holding a cigarette yeah i I, I just looked at his boots because when he was on the couch and he was putting his boots up on the couch i'm like why would you do that and then in the photograph i was looking for the boots immediately yeah, the, the actual photograph, she's got a cigarette, which is why this should be an R-rated movie. That seemed interesting to me because then I, tr- I tried to retro cigarettes into her hands and all of her cigarettes. Like, <laughs> oh, so she was a smoker. <laughs> retro cigarettes. Um, can I ask she a kind of cool. quick, dumb question? Uh, how do you guys feel about music in this movie? Uh, David Wingo. Yeah, it's David Wingo. He did Take Shelter as well. I think he probably did Midnight Special. Uh, I was fine with it. I mean, I I didn't. It's not one of those movies I watched and thought, uh, Dingus is going to hate the music, because that's generally when music is overdone. That's sort of that. That's the first thing that occurs to me is, oh, Dingus would hate this. All right. Why did you hate this? Was did did you like the music? Not like the music? It just didn't have any impact. Uh, David Wingo kind of does all of his. It's going to sound terrible, but his stuff kind of sounds the same to me with that little tinkly trickly bit like that's always right. in some point although i do like that sound um uh i would neither you know it didn't really call attention to itself that much i recall the second time i saw it when they're in the field thinking that's eh, a little much but it wasn't too heavy over other parts of the movie so i guess the best i can say about it is i didn't mind it how's that did right. it work for you well I, uh, no it didn't and, and it's one of the things that that kind of would uh would 
buff me away from the movie a little bit too much. Uh, I love his music in Take Shelter. I think it I think it has a, the exact right balance. In this movie, there were too many moments where that where that gentle music was was like this is a scene of gentle importance. The music is letting you know in gentle sway, gentle ways that this is important. And I and I'm getting increasingly aware of this and. Uh, maybe it's just because of the movie I saw a little bit before this or a couple of movies I'd seen before this that weren't doing that, that I felt that David Wingo was doing or that Jeff Nichols and David Wingo were doing a little bit too much of that. This is what you, you should be knowing now. This is, this is a scene of gentle importance. This is important. Please be aware of that. Um, so it was a little too much for me, but but that might just be my specific area of, of sensitivity. Dingus, if you watched more bad movies or more television, like Kelly Wong and I do, yeah, you well that doesn't count. Other things, Westworld. you you would not have such high standards. <laughs> yeah, your standards are bullshit. Too high. <laughs> so high standards are bullshit. Yeah. Uh, I want to finally ask about the the title card at the end. What did you guys think of that? Once at the end. Yeah, the one that points out seven years later he's killed by a drunk driver. It's like, ee, that's you're leaving. Yeah, why harsh. didn't they come up with why didn't they come up with something better than that? You mean than the reality that happened to him? Oh, good point. What do you mean? How do we think about it? If I mean, it feels crappy. Uh, I think that it gets at uh, what I think is the main point of the movie for Jeff Nichols and what he is. Uh, what the how this fits into his body of work and what he cares about is that it it was telling us that he did care for her that that was her one of her final memories of him mm-hmm. that he was someone who cared for her who cared for them the family uh, that if this is a movie about uh, trying to about starting a family and about the uh, the government being opposed to your family and how you end up prevailing and how you just have this anxiety about the enormous responsibility of protecting and supporting a family uh, that in the end, it's what he was remembered for mm. by her. Uh, and I think because when that thing flashed up about the drunk driver, I was like, oh, God, don't leave me with that. Uh, and instead, it leaves you with, you know, shortly before her death, many, many years, what would it have been like 30 years later, uh, shortly before her death. She recalled in an interview, uh, he cared for us. Uh, and I just think that that's specifically there to uh, make us a recall. person, not a symbol. Well, no, to make us recall that scene where he's like, I can care for you. I can care for you. And he he's so uncertain about it. And he's, he's crying and she comforts him. And she just says, I know, I know. Yeah. Hey, did that um, in that last in that last bit where the where the rope goes over the tree branch, did that freak either of you out? Well, there are there are <laughs> they're talking about slavery at that point, and I, I was like, I, I get what they were doing, um, right. but yeah, I mean, I think clearly there's I I am okay with some of the movie's imagery being a little heavy because I think it earned it, and it's okay, okay. to invoke it's 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 kind of okay at that point to quietly invoke lynchings yeah. and then reveal that their children are making a swing, uh, in the same way that I was okay with all the shots of of uh, mortar being put between bricks. Because um, mm. also, of course, very metaphorical. That, by the way, he, he definitely was a, a bricklayer. That was not – I don't know about the racing stuff that you asked about, Dingus, but Richard Loving did make a living laying bricks. Right. So he they earned that metaphor, I, I feel. 
I love that he's constantly carrying around that level with him, that huge level. Yeah. yeah. That was really cool. She's Irish and Ethiopian. So. I th- so in a st- so this what? this movie that's important about America is basically told by an Aussie and an Irish woman. <laughs> it's like, wait, are there no good American actors who could have done this? They're taking our jobs. Maybe it is good that Donald Trump is president and he'll nip this in the bud. And from now on, only Americans will play Americans. And isn't but- Martin Sokus like from New Zealand? Oh, I thought he, I was going to want to call him Eastern European, but I think you're right. Oh. Yeah, he's definitely not a normal speaking American. Uh, Ruth Ruth Nega, super strong Irish accent, which makes her even more adorable when she talks for real. Uh, of course, Joel Edgerton is an Aussie. At least the audience is American. One, two, three, not only how would this play in Germany, Kelly Wand? Miserable. <laughs> I don't know. They don't care. I don't. I think they would just be mortified. They were by American Honey. I saw that with Germans. They were just like, oh, Shia, oh, no, terrible. <laughs> Wait a minute. Well, wow. Why didn't they have a problem with American Honey? What was their issue with that? Um, it just seemed like the squalor was horrifying to them, even though they have tons of squalor in this one area. And you think that misogyny would be horrifying to them? No, I don't think so. <laughs> that they would understand. No, they'd just be horrified that it was that anyone would have cared. It is weird. Like I, I can't. Im- it's it's really weird seeing a movie where you you're it's you're supposed to yeah exactly you're supposed to take for granted a world where uh, an interracial couple is frowned upon and I know there's certainly parts of the U.S. where that happens that's so recent though and too. maybe it's because you know I, I live so. in a big city but this this idea that mixed race couples is somehow outrageous or, or shocking that it's against the law that by the way is is ridiculous like but but when you think you know, women couldn't vote until 1920. That's dumb. Women have been horrible. been allowed to vote for fewer than a hundred years in this country. Well, yeah, it's, say it's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I I remember reading. Um, Look what we did with that, and then yeah. good job, yeah. everybody. Yeah. yeah, nice work, women. Where Why were you women? when we needed you? Voted for. They all hated. Uh, I remember reading. Uh, William Faulkner in college, and uh, you know he was writing in the 30s, of course. But uh, he's got a couple of books: uh, Absalom, Absalom. There's one called Light in August, where the twist, the the reveal that, that is supposed to be shocking, is an interracial relationship. <laughs> and I remember reading really? those and thinking, "What's the big deal? Why is this? A, I don't yeah. understand." But Faulkner, you're a terrible writer. This isn't the least bit shocking. What's the matter with you? <laughs> I want to hear. I still don't like this. If the, the sheriff's explanation didn't help edify me. I still don't get it. I'm as baffled as Edgerton. <laughs> <laughs> he made a wren, a wren, and a robin, a robin. Do well, they see if they see themselves as different species? Yeah, but what's it? I don't. Okay. Well, I like with Kelly Wan. Like, it seems so odd to me that because. So, so not from a different like did they feel that way about Asians and and the answer of course is yes they didn't and they didn't have to live in close close proximity with that wasn't them, against the so law. it wasn't really an issue uh wouldn't it have been like it the is? same misogyny laws that applied to they're all the war brides weren't there 
This is a good question, Kelly Wand. I don't know the answer to that. So why is it? I'm just assuming that if uh, a man tried to marry an Asian woman in Virginia in 1950, what was this, 57? Uh, 50, yeah. 58, that the same thing would have happened. I don't, I don't know for sure, though. I mean, there weren't Asian communities, so it wasn't really an issue. How can you pass a law against something that's... Different species is a scientific issue. Yeah, that's what's weird. It seems to have been settled. So like science. Yeah, exactly. Like science matters in this. What? But the word species, if you don't even know what your terminology is. Do you know what the word climate means? Yeah, Kelly Watt, these are also creationists, so... All right. All That's right. Let's, let's talk about different kinds of couples. Let's now, for this week's oh. 3x3, talk about couples of actors playing the same character. Finally a segue so that much. works. These are characters who are played by two different actors. Usually, you guys might come up with some different things, usually because the character got older and a certain actor was too young or too old to play the other version of the character. So they call in a new actor. Sometimes this is great. Sometimes it's stupid. These are examples of the great and the stupid. Uh, it can be terrible or it can be awful. The only thing I ask is that your choice not be something that is like, yeah, okay, whatever. You must think that it is great or terrible. So, Kelly, uh, you're introducing next week's 3 by 3 I like that you put it as call in another actor. Like, yeah, I like, like that, this act, That's like the we, scenario. Oh, wait, we've got, we got, got older shit. Hold on, this is 10 years later. Quick, call another actor. Call so, another actor. Yeah, that's like how they do sports, years. right? Like this when the pitcher, like, oh, the pitcher's tired. Quick, get us another pitcher. They do that. Telephones were invented because 10-year problems are really cropping up. <laughs> Joel Edgerton had to have a telephone put in at the studio. <laughs> Kelly Wand, our your favorite. I forget how what I, what I call this best and worst actors to actors. I think Dingus had a better way to put it that I forgot. I don't know. What, I don't know how you're going to couch this. To be okay, honest. in that case, I'm sticking with best and worst examples of actors turning into other actors. I'm ecstatic that you. The caveat you had at the end last week was or terrible. Right, and, and no body switch movies. That's also an important thing. I like the way that you characterize his voice, Kelly, as Emo Phillips. We're terrible. We're terrible. I think that's a little uh, Owen Wilson. Or terrible. Yeah. Or terrible. Or terrible. Or right, terrible. So that's Nick Cage. A terrible or an awesome one for us for your number three. Sure, Nick Cage. Uh, let's hear it again. Or terrible. Wow, Kelly Wan, that's not bad. That See? could be one of those like micro impressions. I just got to hey. change my lip shape. No, no, no. It works. Just do it. You could do. You've, you've seen Ross Marquand's micro impressions, the guy from Walking Dead, right? Who? What? what? Oh. I'm like that guy Darwin in that X Men movie from the '60s. Okay, what were you gonna say? I don't know what you just said. Adapt to survive. Who's from Walking Dead? There, there's a character in Walking Dead who does these micro impressions. He's a, he's a comic, and they're 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 brilliant. Like uh, the the really funny one is Liam Neeson trying to use a voicemail, or Antonio Banderas forgetting his password. Uh, and they're just little tiny like three or four second impressions. Your Nick Cage is that good. It could be one of those micro impressions. Yeah. I'm just saying. Hmm. Kelly Wan, I'm trying to give you a compliment, and you have to make a big production out of it because. <laughs> Of reasons. But really, Kelly Wan, I just want to know one of your favorite examples of an actor turning into another actor that is either wonderful or terrible. Wonderful or terrible. 
That was no one. You know, you've you've pre-ruined for me, Kelly Wand. Pruined. Uh, you pruined the Tomb Raider movie. I will never be able to watch Alicia Vikander. Even if Alicia Vikander is good as Laura Croft, your impression of her has completely ruined any movie I see. If I were to go back and watch Ex Machina, you would have ruined it for me. I'm just out of breath from swinging on this vine. <laughs> That's what she's going to say. Let's see. I think you're confusing Laura Croft and Tarzan. Oh, yeah, I saw Tarzan on the plane. The Alexander Skarsgård? No, the actual Tarzan. The actual guy. The movie. I'm all, what? That's, how high is that line? <laughs> JK. He didn't know how the seatbelt works. That's what's weird. He's, this, he's piloting. We're going to crash. I joked. <laughs> <laughs> to the other passengers. They weren't amused at all. Or interested that it was Tarzan flying a plane. I joked. The co-pilot was, uh, never mind. Number three, number best actor change Cheetah. in movies. You were going to say Cheetah, weren't you? Were I you can't remember. To the name of Tarzan's monkey? Yeah, because I thought it was Mr. Nelson, but that's Pippi's. It's Cheetah, I believe. Your horse is old man. Jane doesn't even get to be the pilot? Jesus. She's a stewardess, I guess. Tommy and <sighs> Oh, yeah, Margot Robbie. Did you see the guys see that movie? Margo, what Margo? Oh no, the Tarzan. No one saw that. She's Jane. I know. Exactly zero people apparently saw that. I like the books, and I was curious. I'm sure it was very true to them. Very. It's like Speed that. Racer. They keep moving around in time so much. You're like, what? Huh? Which race am I in? Speed Racer moves around in. T- I don't know. What yeah, the, none of the one- races are just shown from beginning to end in Speed Racer. It's just like. I've never. I've never. Nobody. Also, nobody has seen the Wachowskis' Speed Racer either. Uh, it's like a tranny threw up. <laughs> My number three uh, actor change is uh, Looper when Bruce Willis turns into. Uh, other way around. James. Stop I mean, that. Reverse it. Jefferson Gordon Levitz turns <laughs> is, into Bruce Willis. Is this an awful one or an yeah, awesome one? They all suck. But come on, they give him a, a fake nose or whatever to make him look more like. They give him prosthetics on it's his face. It's an uncanny valley effect. It's, Was uh, it Dingus, our yeah, looper apologist here? Yeah, I, I am the looper apologist, and I it's, actually love oh. that. I liked That's Looper. I loved this Paul Dano stuff, even though it's. But totally Paul Dano ridiculous. does not become another character. Actually, does he? Is there an older? I think there might no. be. I guess once he gets all his limbs removed, he's a different character. They had to bring in another actor for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but Dingus, you did like Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a young uh, Bruce Willis. I did too. Oh. Yes. Wait, you just said it was terrible. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. It is terrible. But I, I thought the Can movie I get a read back okay. from the court stenographer? <laughs> Let me start all over. <laughs> what I meant to say was, well, when it turns into that whole thing about the kid who's telekinetic, then I didn't like Looper because I thought it, I was enjoying it as a time travel movie. Right, but it. as a movie where you're casting a young version of Bruce Willis, hey, let's get Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You're but then okay they messed with, with his face. No, I'm not okay with so it. So, Dingus, I think you were right first where you said he called it terrible. Okay, it's pretty you. good, though. I really liked it. <laughs> but, Dingus, so how does that – that you would defend that. Like, that worked for you. You thought that that was a, either an interesting or a successful choice, right? Well, I like it mainly from the point of view of the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt said, um, you know, because uh, I, I think – 
from what I understand around the time of this movie, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was saying, I'll change my look entirely to make this work. Uh, and, and bring, you know, bring on like casts of the face of Bruce Willis and let's make makeup so that it makes sense that I'm the younger version of that. And there's this great press photo, this great, like beautiful sort of grainy black and white photo. I think that Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt actually put up of him staring at this like cast of this profile cast of Bruce Willis's face as they're as they've constructed the same uh facial structure onto his own face um and so as the younger star of the movie he was like no it makes more sense for me to uh graft my look onto his rather than him having to change to me or or getting somebody to look like me and it seemed like this really cool idea of a younger actor going yeah i'll do that I, i'll totally do that and that's I why i like that needed so to do it. I'm, I'm sure they did but he's the one who actually kind of made the sacrifice to change his look uh, so that's why I, I kind of like that one i mean i understand why you're saying it's terrible but I really, this- I really like the idea of it I like the idea, but there's a montage of where you see him every like couple years, and so it shows him with like different haircuts, and then it just suddenly shifts to like in 2068, and then it's two years later, and it's Bruce Willis just wearing a wig that looks a little <laughs> like the hair in the last one, but like the face <laughs> is totally different, and it, then the montage just keeps going with him. I wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder if it would have called more or less attention to itself if they had just said, yeah, they don't really look alike, whatever, we're just going to go with it, which is what some of these that we'll talk about actually do is they're just, yeah, we know they don't look like each other, but whatever, just work with us. Like I wonder if they hadn't done the makeup, would I have noticed it less or more, and I don't know the answer to that. If they look too similar, then like everyone in the restaurant when they go, they're going, wait, wait a minute, it's that same guy. Well, part of it depends on the age gap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you're talking about a kid who's like prepubescent and then right, exactly. the adult version, he's I mean, playing some. Willis is playing someone younger, I think. Right, like like the thirty year old. That's what I mean because I think they're too close in age. Well, and like Dingus is saying, you know, puberty you, is a huge difference. To, you know, yeah. you could see someone pu- prepubescent and just assume, oh, when he hits puberty, he's going to turn into actor X. That that makes more sense. This was Lou puberty. I mean, just look at the way that that child actors blossom. Uh, and sometimes, blossom. It, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Oh, poor Cameron Bright. Uh, oh, wait, that's not blossom. <laughs> I know. I just feel bad for the guy. He was so or, good. Haley, or Haley Joel Osment. I mean, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I really like that guy. I think he's he's really clever. I think he's funny. It's funny to listen to him talk now. But look at the way he was as this kid in Sixth Sense, and look at the way he looks now as an actor, as a as an adult actor. Or Drew Barrymore. Well, to be actually, although I think the issue there, Dingus, and I wonder is how much are we exposed to that person over the process. Like Haley Joel Osment and Cameron Bright kind of dropped out and then they suddenly reemerged as adults and it looked weird. Um, Drew Barrymore, on the other hand, you know, we see her at all these different stages in her career and her aging. Uh, Mm. So I think we're more used to it. So good point. Well, let me, let me then give you guys an example of, Oh no, it's Kelly Wan's turn. Oh, we Uh, that would be my turn. Yes, Dingus, it is your turn. What is an example, terrible or awesome, of an actor turning into another actor, generally because the character aged? 
All right, this is uh, not something that has anything to do with what we've been talking about. It's just something that I like because of the way that the movie plays out and uh, and how I felt watching the movie and and eventually sort of figuring out, oh, this is how these two are are, uh, are related to each other. And this would be the movie Stand By Me, and this would be mm-hmm. the actor Will Wheaton and the actor Richard Dreyfuss, who are playing the same role, but you don't realize that because one of them is called The Writer, and the other one is called Gordy Lachance. Um, but you understand that as the movie goes on, that what you're watching is him dealing with this this particular memory because of the newspaper headline that he's read about his friend, Chris Chambers, who has been um, murdered, or who has been killed while he was trying to do something nice. Uh, and he's, and this whole, the whole way that this, this story develops is uh, because Chris Chambers encouraged him to become the person that he is today. Uh, and it, mainly this is uh, a voice, uh, giving voice to the character that we see becoming a writer early on. Uh, and that's why I really love, love the performance. I, I, partly it's because I love the way that Richard Dreyfuss kind of eases us into the movie because it's a, it's a really great vocal performance at the beginning. And I think Will Wheaton is amazing in this movie. I mean, I think all, all, all four of the kids are amazing in the movie. Um, but I, I don't think that they, they look like or sound like each other in any way. Uh, but I just like the fact that both of them are essentially playing that character. Dingus, who's most amazing in Stand By Me? Uh, John Cusack. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I was, well, okay. Uh, what were you? What were you saying? Oh, seriously, who is the best? Like, who is the best actor in Stand By Me? I think. Oh, River Phoenix. If I, by. Oh, without sorry. a doubt, River Phoenix. Is yeah. And I'm hoping that he's going to come up shortly. Hmm. Hmm. My third favorite uh. example. Uh, don't, Kelly Wan, don't pre-telegraph how you feel about certain things. Telegraph. My, <laughs> my third, two of mine are awful. One of them is great. And then the great one is just one of my all-time favorites. But the two awful ones are I just love for how awful they are. Uh, and specifically, I don't know that either of you guys have seen The Debt, that John Madden movie about Israeli spies trying to get the Nazi out of uh, – Is that the one with Jessica Chastain? Yes. OK, so here's yeah, – I didn't see it because – I mean because basically of this very topic. Yeah, it's just terrible. I think it's a horrible movie. But yeah. one of the terrible things about it – well, so it's these older – it's these people recalling their career when they were younger as uh, secret agents for Israel who had to infiltrate, I guess, East Germany and try to kidnap out uh, an accused Nazi to stand trial. So the characters are uh, Tom Wilkinson, Helen Mirren, and Kieran Hines, all of whom are great, right? You want to see a movie about them? Fantastic. But a lot of the movie (laughs) is them like 30-whatever years earlier. So we need earlier versions of these actors, right? And for the most part, they're interesting choices. You know, a younger Helen Mirren, uh, Jessica Chastain. Oh, okay. Sorry. Interesting choice. Yeah. Uh, a younger Tom Wilkinson, Celeborn, uh, Martin Slocus, who we saw today and uh, who we saw in Loving. Uh, who are we going to get for our younger Kieran Hines? Because Kieran Hines has got a great face, right? He's got this just big Irish slab of a face. The guy looks awesome. Let's see. Our young Kieran Hines. Oh, oh, look. We got Sam Worthington. What? 
<laughs> Sam, uh, Sam Worthington grows up to be Kieran Hines in the debt. It is ridiculous. <laughs> or uh, or you go backwards. I think you actually meet Sam Worthington first and then <laughs> later on. Does it get run over? Uh how did you know? I'm just guessing. Are are you guessing because that's what you would like to happen to an older Sam Worthington? No, I just imagine because his face is such a slab later on. Oh, no. Like a steamroller going over him. Uh, I think I forget one of the characters does commit suicide in traffic. If I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken. So for a minute, I was thinking you'd actually seen it. Um, Nope. No, no, you waved me off of it because of this very reason. Yeah, I don't advise watching it. Uh, I mean, Sam Worthington, the poor guy, we give him a lot of guff. But the problem is, you know, next to Jessica Chastain and and, uh, Martin Sokas, those are both just great, striking people. And then, oh, look, it's a blandly handsome Australian who's not a very good actor. All right, so there you go. The Debt. Uh, Do you know who directed The Debt? This is always – I'm taken aback by this name. Do you guys know? No. John Madden. Oh, Oh, the guy who did uh, Shakespeare in Love. Exactly, but he's also apparently a football coach in – yeah. Played no, by he, does, he does video games. Yeah, video game football coach, right. Kelly Wand, uh, what's your second favorite or worst example of an actor turning into another actor? My least favorite second one is when Leonard Nimoy's Mr. Spock in the Star Trek movie. You don't and like Zachary uh, Quinto as, as Leonard Nimoy? Wait, wait, which no, I like him. Uh, I think Into Darkness, if I have to pick one. Yeah, you do. All right, Into Darkness, because that's where they just call him up and go, hey, man, how'd you beat Khan? And then he says a bunch of stuff. But wait, you do or don't like uh, Zachary Quinto or Leonard Nimoy playing? No, I like Zachary Quinto playing him, and I like Leonard Nimoy as an actor, but it seems really dumb to, like, shoehorn him into that movie to, like, just... You don't like an old, alternate timeline Spock being in the movie, you're saying? No. But you're okay, though, with Zachary Quinto playing Spock? Sure. And you're okay with Leonard Nimoy originating Spock. But it sort of ruins the stakes if there's like another guy who's already done it that you can just phone up to ask what happened in it. Rather than just digitize an older Zachary Quinn. Yeah, because they're not the same character anyway. (laughs) It just seems like a really dumb idea. I don't know. You could have two people looking completely different. I don't know. I don't. These alternate dimension things that the Star Trek is set up to do, I don't understand. As far as I'm concerned, just wipe the slate clean of all that old, goofy Star Trek. <sighs> yeah, just like, didn't they recently cancel all of the books and video games and comic books about Star Wars? Like they said, none of those count. Only Cisco getting his ship is canon. In Star Trek? Yeah. It's <laughs> an important moment, I understand. Um, uh, I love. I like. I really like Zachary Quinto, and I love his his Leonard Nimoy impression. And it reminds me of someone else who might come up on this topic, but I won't say anything. You know, I guess. Oh, go ahead. Wait, bef- bef- go ahead, Kelly. Well, just it's just only him, but they don't bring the other guys back. If you're just gonna do like a love boat kind of thing. Well, some of them are dead, Kelly. One way to be insensitive. Yeah. What? Just get lookalikes. Just CG it. Why would you need a look-alike when Leonard Nimoy is available? <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> then he should just play both of them. Not both of them. This is why I asked which of the Star Treks. I wasn't just being pedantic. Because in the first of the reboot movies, there's another actor playing Spock. His name's Jacob Kogan. And he's playing the younger one. 
and he's a really he's really good at it. Like even he, younger than Zachary Quinto, you mean? Yeah, he plays the okay. little kid, and he and he has to deal with his bullying uh, scene, and he beats the hell out of a couple people, and that's when people like Spock. You've got a little too much emotion. And that's those are the first scenes with his mom. And Jacob Cogan is this awesome uh, young actor. I don't know what he's done since then, but he was also in this movie Joshua, and he played Joshua. Oh. And, if you can picture his face, and if you've seen Joshua, you can, you can totally picture him as Zachary Kinto. The way his mouth moves, the way his face moves. I mean, he's great as the earlier Spock. I mean, this isn't one of my choices, but that's why I kind of was asking you, Kelly, which of the Star Treks you were choosing, because I think Jacob Cogan is really good. Yeah, Kelly just hates Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Wait, so he's in search for Spock? No, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. Oh. <laughs> Because there's that kid who plays Spock in Star Trek Three too. Oh, was he a good likeness? Yeah, but he just goes. Ugh. Why does he make that noise? Because he's newly resurrected and his bone structure hurts. <laughs> Wait a minute, Spock is resurrected as a child. Yeah. What? Just, oh just, yeah, I guess he uh, is. Kind of. Then they shoot out. Kirk's son because then Christopher Lloyd's the Klingon. He's like, okay, I'm shooting one of you. Now you're just making stuff up. None of this makes sense. What? What is your second favorite instance versus Kirsty for terribleness or or awesomeness of an actor turning? Taxi versus Cheers. All right, my next two are are just ones that I love. Uh, All three of these are ones I like, but these two are ones I love. Um, And this is from uh, the movie There Will Be Blood. Um, And this is uh, uh, Dylan Frazier is a young actor. He's not even an actor. He's just a young dude who lived in that town who plays the young H.W. Um, and I think he really sits the table for the older H.W. who later comes along and who's played by a guy named Russell Harvard. Um, and I think both of them do a, a really good job, but Dylan Frazier sets the table for and does most of the work that sets who this character H.W. is. Um, you know, who's the, who's the bastard in the basket and who is constantly there almost as a prop. I mean, uh, the, and I don't know if this is true, but the story is that, um, uh, Dylan Fraser's mom was a police officer who pulled over the casting director, um, like for speeding or something while they were in town to shoot. And, and she like tried to say, Hey, my, my kid could be in the, in this movie when she found out they were doing a movie. Now, I mean, some of this might be apocryphal. I don't know. Uh, but it took a while to sort of convince her once like the studio sent her like footage of his last movie, which was, I think gangs of New York. And she's like, no, I don't want him to be in that. That's crazy. I don't want him to be with that crazy man. Uh, and then they sent him, sent her, um, footage of age of innocence. And she's like, okay, it's all right. Then. Um, <laughs> I could be getting all of this wrong, but I think that's how it went. Anyway, uh, Dylan Fraser, the younger HW, is is by his side uh, of Daniel Plainview, basically giving him legitimacy as a family man, and and the way their relationship develops over the course of this movie, um, and uh, you know, it's really hard watching all of these scenes and not watching the whole movie, you know, the way that they start to like kind of fall for each other, even though he's kind of a prop as this family and they're going shooting for quill. And he's explained to him how the oil business works and how they're going to, you know, do a pipeline to the sea and the kids asking certain questions. And then of course he has that accident and their relationship changes as 
you know, Daniel realizes I'm going to have to take care of this kid. And then he puts him on a train and that part of the movie kind of ends. And then Russell Harvard's version of HW shows up at the end for this really heartbreaking scene with the interpreter. Uh, but I love the way um, that both of these actors kind of balance the role, but mainly the way that, uh, that Dylan Frazier sets it up. Do we know them from other things? Dylan Frazier, that's the only thing Dylan Frazier has ever been in, I think. Um, as far as Russell Harvard, I think he's been in a lot of different stuff, but I couldn't tell you what. Okay. But I think, I, I think literally, if you look at the IMDb page of the kid, of the younger kid, I mean, obviously the movie also has two twins playing the baby in the basket in the early part of the movie because, you know, Daniel Plainview adopts the kid uh, when one of his workers dies in an accident. Um, I, I think a couple of twins play the role as well, but I'm not going to give them credit for what we're talking about here. They're just a couple of babies. Um, but I, don't, I think literally the only thing on his credit is their work blood. That's it. It is super easy to cast the baby versions of characters. <laughs> as long as you just like don't accidentally like cast an Asian or, or whatever. Well, uh, as long as you have a couple of parents who are willing to just like put their babies on on a set for yeah. however long. All babies look alike, so any baby could become any actor when it grows up. Or like Dwayne Johnson in Central Intelligence. He's not a baby in that. He's a high school kid. What's the matter with you, uh, Kelly Wand? He's wearing a diaper though. Did you see Central Intelligence? I watched that part and then I fell asleep. <laughs> okay, you're missing some of uh, Kevin Hart's finest work. I saw he was a baby too. My third, second favorite example of an actor. So you're never going to have heard of either of these actresses, and I frankly don't even know their names. Uh, this is a movie made in Thailand, and I can't. I think there's a horror movie called The Eye, which is a Thai horror movie, but I don't know. I didn't even really know there were. Taiwanese movies uh, until I saw this. It's called Last Life in the Universe. And it, the, the director's name is Panic. Ready for this? Radhanaruang. I practiced that for quite some time. Radhanaruang is his last name. And yeah, he's what's a, the name? <laughs> he's a fairly, as, as well known as a movie director could be in Thailand, he's a relatively prolific. Thai director. And this movie, Last Life in the Universe, is about a Japanese expatriate living in Thailand, and he falls in love with a woman at this escort club where you go and the woman just kind of hangs out with you and flirts with you, and I guess you pay her or whatever. So he falls in love with her, and when she dies, he forms a bond with her sister, and they become close. And at a certain point, they both have to leave town because they're on the lam. Uh, so they go out in the wilderness and they hang out and they, they get closer to each other. And at a certain point in the movie, the actress playing the sister is swapped out for the actress playing the original girl who had died. It's like and, Roseanne. And watching this, I'm thinking – I don't know what you're talking about. It's a TV reference. I don't understand it, Kelly Wand. Uh, watching this, I'm thinking, oh, the director is making a cool commentary about how – the main character is superimposing his feelings about the earlier girl on this girl, right? Like that's some cool statement he's making. And then later in the movie, it changes back to the original actress playing the sister, and the rest of the movie happens. Uh, listening to the director's commentary, it is so disheartening to hear the director say, yeah, you know, we liked working with that first actress, and we really missed her and kind of liked having her around on the set, so we just brought her back to shoot for a week or so. <laughs> like he has no <sighs> like he, he has no intentionality about this idea which I just wished I hadn't known that I would have been much happier. 
But so that's uh, Last Life in the Universe. Kelly Wand, have you seen The Last Life in the Universe? No, I don't see movies that take place that distant. <laughs> distant. Uh, in that case, Kelly Wand, what movies do you see where an actor turns into another actor and it's your favorite or most hated example of it? My number one is The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of that going on. Because uh, it's kind of sad, but thanks for bringing the room down, Kelly Wand. Heath Ledger yeah. died, so he's in the first half, but then he turns into other actors, such as Jude Law, Johnny Depp, and Colin Farrell. Oh yeah, good lord! Yeah. And they're all kind of different from each other, um, but I think it sort of works for what the movie's trying to do. Or I remember thinking that at the time. Like, they're all sort of, they play different facets of that character. You know, that's just what Terry Gilliam probably wants you to think. Well, that's probably what he what he turned it into, maybe. Or maybe it's just, they're just that's just their natural ways. And so I just imbued that. I just recall it being sad and confusing <laughs> more than anything else. But the whole movie is like that, kind of. But it was so sad and confusing because Heath, Heath Ledger died, not because of the movie itself. Yeah, but he, he turned like the Colin Farrell interpretation of what that that character does in the third act is way different than the, how the character seems at the beginning, which seems to me confused. But okay, yeah. Kelly, one, have you heard the bit about when he was shooting Twelve Monkeys, Terry Gilliam, and this is supposed to be an example of how he's a, a director who's really difficult to work with. Mm. Uh, he's shooting some scene in 12 Monkeys where in the background there's supposed to be a hamster running on a wheel and it's like powering some machinery or something. But the, the point is there's a hamster and it's supposed to be running on the wheel. Terry Gilliam was apparently a, just a terror on the set for refusing to shoot the scene unless the hamster would run on the wheel. And if the hamster wasn't running on the wheel, you know, he'd cut, he'd wait. They'd, until they got the hamster running on the wheel, he wasn't going to go forward with the scene. It was just a little tiny element in the background. But I remember thinking... Well, wait a minute. If you're going to put that in the background, like if that's something you want, yeah, make sure it's happening. You know, a hamster sitting in a cage is inert and dull and boring and makes no statement. A hamster moving on a wheel, like running on one of those wheels, even if it's a little tiny element, that's kind of an important visual metaphor. Can't you just CG that? This is before they invented CG. Uh, but I remember he's seeing that and thinking, well, yeah, exactly. Of course he wants the hamster running on the wheel. He put it there for a reason. Like that should be an example of how he's a great director and not how he's apparently difficult to work with. Hmm. Well, just shoot the scene when the hamster's ready to run. It just seems like bad hamster wrangling. Well, really, it just comes down to never do a scene with children or animals. Yeah, or W.C. Fields. Mm. Yeah, there's other reasons you can't do scenes with him. That's what the kids would say. Like, don't do a scene with him. Uh, the guy who made The Witch directed about how uh, mentioned how funny it was that he directed a movie that leaned very heavily on both children and animals. <laughs> yeah, and it's creepy. Dingus, what's your favorite example of an actor turning into another actor? All right, this is the one that popped in. This is the absolute obvious one, and I've talked about this many times before. Uh, this is my left foot, um, and this is because uh, I I long felt. Um, and at the time, at, at the time I felt this, that, and this was really, this year was a great year for movies and, uh, a really a great couple of performances that came out that year. Um, so, uh, 
but my problem with it was that I felt that Hugh O'Connor, who plays the young Christy Brown, uh, completely made the performance, and then um, Daniel Day-Lewis, as brilliant as he is, carried it the rest of the way. Uh, and indeed, in in his Oscar speech, and I, wa- I watched that whole thing again, it's really annoying that, I mean, I don't watch the Oscars anymore, even though I love them beyond all reason. I watched that again, and Jodie Foster is staying there going on and on with this terrible speech about how important performances are and everything. Finally, she gets around to saying the nominees and everything, and he goes up on stage, and one of the first things that Daniel Day-Lewis says after like holding up the Oscar and saying, you know, this will get me a, a good couple of nights in Dublin, you know, um, is he, he says, I shared Christie's life for a while with a remarkable young actor named Hugh O'Connor. And then he goes on to say how much everybody else worked on the movie. Well, damn it, I think that Hugh O'Connor makes that performance work for the later part of the movie. And Daniel Day-Lewis is brilliant as Christy Brown. I'm not saying he's not. But I think that Hugh O'Connor is also brilliant and deserves half that Oscar Damn it! And I've always felt that. I felt that from the moment it happened. And when you brought up this topic, Tom, I felt that immediately. Uh, Hugh O'Connor has continued to work. Uh, he works mainly in TV and stuff, but he, he, he mean he still works as an actor. Um, I don't know if it's in anything that uh, that any of us would know, but still, the guy continues to work, and he's great in the part. He's great as that kid. Uh, and again. So is Daniel Day-Lewis. They both play the same part. They play... I, I, I don't know. It, it's just frustrating to me that Hugh O'Connor gets no recognition for this other than one line, sort of a cursory line at the beginning of at least Daniel Day-Lewis had the, had the, had the grace to say that. Um, but other than that, nothing. Uh, so it, 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 I love it because I think he's so good, but I hate it because I wish the guy had gotten more credit. Kelly Wand, it sounds to me like like Dingus is finally figured out, figuring out. I mean, it's painful for him, it's difficult, but he's finally figuring out that the Oscars are absolute rubbish. Oh, <laughs> like it's I'm, I'm it's like watching him grow up. It's kind of cute. He wasn't he it's was doing crash one. <laughs> uh, that that might have been where he really started to lose faith. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe back in it 1990. Is- it is funny, Dingus, how every year, and I imagine you're getting to be the same way, I'm kind of curious. Like, as the nominations roll around, I'm like, who's going to get nominated? And there's all this, like, media-manufactured buzz, and that's as it should be and as they expect. And then you find out who got nominated, at which point I completely lose interest. I couldn't <laughs> care less who wins. I never, I won't remember a year from later what got nominated and what didn't. Uh, it's just such this weird little pointless blip on my entertainment news radar yeah. these days. I think it's because you scramble to see everything before the But not for the year. Oscars. Not for the Oscars, though. No, but that's why they release it then. Oh, oh, oh I see what you're saying. And then you go, oh, this is the second act of whatever that I is. I don't think I've – wait, what? <laughs> I'm not well, sure. just like, here, hey, is it going to be all the stuff I saw or did I see the wrong movies? I have never – you know, when something gets nominated, I'm curious to maybe look more into it. But I, like I never saw The Help and I never had any desire to. Yeah, didn't that, that get one. like 12 nominations or something? Did it? I don't know. See, that's the thing. I don't know. I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure. Like sometimes movies like that get a bunch of nominations, and I'm still like, I don't care. I'm not going to see that. And the thing is I can't think of any examples because I don't remember them. I heard Chariots of Fire is good. <laughs> 
my favorite example of an actor turning into another actor, and you guys can leave the podcast while I talk to the listeners. You're not way ahead of you, Tom. I just love Jessica Chastain has like she she's a beautiful woman and she's an interestingly kind of icy actress, but you can buy that she's super efficient, uh, maybe super intelligent, like in Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, so a, a little girl playing a young Jessica Chastain kind of has to also ch- channel that. Like she's got to be like a, a, a super sharp science nerd but also kind of icy and, and not too precious. Um, but still you look at her and you think, man, she's going to be a beautiful woman one day. Uh, so I just love so much, and this is partly because I love the movie so much. I love – Mackenzie Foy, the little actress playing Jessica Chastain in Interstellar before she becomes Jessica Chastain. And how, as Dingus mentioned about a couple of these things, uh, Mackenzie Foy kind of lays some great groundwork for Jessica Chastain later in the movie. Um, and I just love how these two actresses physically resemble each other and specifically for how Mackenzie Foy, either because she's like that or she's a good actress, kind of channels or gets what Jessica Chastain is like as an adult. So, all right, you guys can come back to the podcast, and I'm now going to tell you guys uh, some of what the listeners have for their favorite examples of actors turning into other actors. <laughs> they might actually know what the topic is because they might remember what I said. Let's see. Paul Weimer calls it swapping actors in movies. Maybe that's what I, I said. You have to avoid the word swapping because you said there are no swapping. Ah, well, Paul Weimer opens with, if Tom had allowed body swap movies, and I'm not even going to read the rest of his sentence because I didn't allow body swap movies. Right. Very good. Paul Weimer, I'll just respond with a line from uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. If a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass on the ground when he jumped. Hmm. There you go. So uh, Christy. <laughs> Warren Beatty's movie tanked this weekend. Oh, it, yeah. Yeah, it like set a record for uh, like wide releases that no one went to see. Heaven did wait. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Paul says he's put enough time in 3x3 three three jail not to risk any body swap movies. Let that be a lesson for everyone. Uh, in Atonement. Reds in the profit margin. There's a there's a, a Joe Wright movie I've never seen. Uh, in Atonement, a movie I didn't particularly care for but vividly remember, Brioni – Sounds like the name of a hobbit. Uh, the narrator and writer of the story is played by Saoirse Ronan, Romola Geray, and much later in life, Vanessa Redgrave. Has anyone on this podcast seen Atonement? I have. I oh. did. Oh. Is this a good one? you guys agree with Paul Weimer? Yep. Mm, yeah. I agree. No, well, no, I agree with Paul Weimer that I didn't particularly like it. <laughs> what? I did. Oh, you did? I'm dumb, though. Yeah. Oh, you're not mm-hmm. dumb. I just didn't, oh. I didn't like it. I thought, you know. Well, Kelly Wan, that might mean uh, that the movie Pan is for you because they have the same director. I heard Warren Beatty's new movies ish terrible. <laughs> uh, Paul Weimer has a bit of Alice Eve love for me. And he says uh, – oh, this is cute. Both Emma Thompson and Alice Eve play uh, Agent O in Men in Black 3, which Dingus has seen. Dingus, can you attest to Alice Eve being a good Emma Thompson and vice versa? I cannot. Because you hated the movie so much or because you don't remember? Because I hated uh, – wait, are we talking about – Men in Black, Black 3. 3. That's the one you've seen, right? I was I was too bored to even pay attention to that yeah. stupid thing. Uh, doesn't it – isn't there another actor swapped out? Like isn't that where 
some where Will Will Smith Josh goes back Brolin in time. Yeah, yeah, and sees turns into Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yeah, you're means? right. Josh Brolin does do that. I have no yeah. idea because that's another weird one. We'll see if anyone brings that up. Yeah. Uh, in Titanic, I almost did this. I almost did this. Paul Weaver asks in parentheses. He asks you to please not groan. Uh, in Titanic, Kate Winslet and Gloria Stewart play young Rose and old Rose. Uh, Paul says his heart will go on, but this three by three will not, and that's where he ends the email. Hmm. Chris so, Hobson. Oh yes, go ahead, Kelly. We're pushing Paul into the ocean right now. When she threw the jewel into the ocean, go on. Did she do that because she had Alzheimer's because of the Titanic, like kind of breaking her mind? Thanks, James Cameron. Okay. Chris Hobson. <laughs> Opens with uh, thanks for the excuse to talk about the movie Bloodsport, which wow. he then which oh he then God. goes on to do. He says Jean Claude Van Damme as Frank Ducks. Now you might hear that and you might think, why? What kind of last name is Ducks? It's like Duke. being last named Cheek Chick or Geese. Uh, it's D U X. Oh, it is Dukes. It's Frank Dukes. It's spelled D U X. I would I know, but it's pronounced Dukes. <laughs> oh, that makes more sense. What? Frank Ducks, that's a ridiculous name. Well, uh, Chris Hobson says that Frank Ducks has his backstory with his old old Japanese man mentor, and he writes that as a hyphenated word, uh, told in a katana-triggered flashback. The flashback is an epic three-hour movie packed into a breakneck 15 minutes with baseball cap slicing, school bullying, tragic war stories, acupuncture diagrams, fish grabbing, tea time with blindfolds, yoga while being beaten with stick, and limb tearing. A young, plausible Van Damme should be an awkwardly dorky kid with a dorky European accent who can't act. And the boy was selected was a home run, according to Chris Hobson. What? It was the first and last movie for this highly specialized actor, <laughs> Chris notes. That's so sad. There should be yeah. more Van, uh, Van Damme movies where his childhood occurs and you could hire that kid. It's an, it's an amazing flashback because it takes place in such a long period of time where he's just like staring at something. And you just wonder what happened. <laughs> what is the collapsing of time during this thing? It's amazing. So we, it's, watched, it's, we watched Bloodsport so many times in college. So it's like Inception yeah. before Inception. Right. Yeah. John Renninger says... The first three that immediately sprang to mind are Titanic, Forrest Gump, and Saving Private Ryan, two of them not involving Tom Hanks. The last one faked the transitioning of the oxymoronically named Harrison Young to Hanks on the beach, but really turned out to be Matt Damon. Oh, so he tricked us at the cemetery. Well, John Renninger characterizes that as a spoiler and a letdown. Hmm. Spoil down. Hmm. Not only that, it's also a way for the movie not to have existed. Right. It's lost found footage. Wait, what? If it's a flashback, then he can't have been there for oh, any of that crap. Right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, thanks, Steven Spielberg. Shaheen Ali uh, says, by my rules, uh, flat, yeah, Shaheen is he's just checking that flashbacks are allowed. Shaheen, that's fine. Pulp Fiction. Chandler Lindauer plays a stoic seven-year-old Butch Coolidge. Another Bruce Willis one. Uh, Butch must sit stoically and say nothing while Christopher Walken describes how his dad preserved his legacy, a gold a watch. Bruce, Bruce Willis plays the older Butch Coolidge going after said watch. You would think that after knowing how his dad preserved it, Butch would lose interest and just leave it. 
Uh, yeah, so I don't know. That's they could. I guess Joseph Gordon-Levitt wasn't available that day. Hmm. But I, I like the I like the mental image there of him sitting there stoically listening to something because then Butch has to sit there and listen as Ving Rhames ah. like uh, you know preaches to him about what uh, pride is about. I think that Tarantino guy is going places. Maybe. Rob Lowe says, my first two picks immediately jumped to mind as I listened to the Hell or High Water podcast. So hopefully not everyone selected them. Rob Lowe, it's okay to select things other people select. You guys seem to like worry. We're the only ones who need to worry about getting scooped. You yeah. guys out there, you're fine. Uh, in Looper, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is made up to look like a younger Bruce mm. Willis. Here we go. Thank you, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe, by the way, wins this week by writing, in Interstellar, the character Murph is portrayed by three actresses. What? Oh my gosh, that's oh. right. I forgot uh, yeah. Ellen Burstyn. How could I have done that? Yeah, go find Anne Hathaway. <gasps> <laughs> That's her last words. <laughs> what a boob. Uh, I mean, good to see her again. Glad she's working. Uh, and then Rob says, my last one came up because something prompted me to watch it this weekend. He doesn't remember what, but, oh, good Lord. In Popstar, Never Stop Stopping. Young Andy Samberg, Jorma Tacone, and Akiva Schaefer are portrayed by Evan Fine, Max Jenkins, and Elliot Smith, respectively. What? Do you guys oh, so it's kids. Thing? It's kid versions, right? That's what he's saying. Of, like, are Evan Fine and Max Jenkins musicians? Is he talking about the Elliot Smith? Who's the Elliot Smith? Can't be. The musician. Huh. Alright. Rob Lowe, you've thoroughly confused me with your final pick, but uh someone out there saw Pop Star Never Stop Stopping. It sounds fun though. Like Pop Star Never Stop Stopping? Yeah. It's fun to say now that I think of it. I never had any desire to see it, but I do enjoy saying it. Hey, I heard Warren Beatty's new movie. <laughs> yeah, how'd it do? It's uh it's bug and then a bunch of Z's. I actually yeah. think of Shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> See, Kelly Wan, see what happens when you just sort of let it percolate a little while? Dick Lacey. No, no. Dingus, this is better. You should quit while you're ahead. Shampoo. (laughs) Honestly, I can't even think of the name of the Warren Beatty movie. Do you guys know? The ones we just did? No, the one that came out and tanked. I love the title, The Ones We Just Did. (laughs) State and Pain. Alexander Barentine says, The example of this that stands out for me is... Good Lord. Louise Bunuel's That Obscure Object of Desire. A middle-aged man falls in love with a very young servant girl and then gets caught up in her whirlwind of young confusion. To portray the girl's hot, cold-running personalities, Bunuel simply casts two different actresses. Oh. Uh, he makes no attempt to make them look or act similar. In fact, one is French and the other is Spanish. It took me a long time to realize they were meant to be the same character. We are just as confused as Fernando Rey who I guess is the main actor in that obscure object of desire. Does either of you guys know this? Mm-mm. No. I think you went right over our head. Alexander, we're not quite that highbrow. Not for lack of trying, though. The listeners are smarter than us. Yeah. We should, they should have podcasts. Newsflash. We should write them. Nick D., in a few early scenes in Goodfellas, we see Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci's characters meet as young boys doing legwork for the mob. I don't know what happened to them, but the kid they got to play Joe Pesci looks exactly like him. His name, uh, Nick D says, is Joseph D'Onofrio. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Hmm. Uh, oh, this is good, too. I loved the Grand Budapest Hotel, but I was seriously taken out of the movie by the prospect that white F. Murray Abraham 
is supposed to be the same character as Brown Tony Revolori, who gives Wes Anderson. It's a little disarming to see. Yeah, he grows up. And, Are you sure? You sure, Wes? You don't want to take a second look there? Okay. Is there a kid Ben Stiller in uh, Greenberg? No. Um, in Royal Tenenbaums? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's making the mice and he's reading all his books. That's my number one. All three of them, all four of them, I guess have. Yeah. Is it just played by kids. one of the kids playing his children? I wonder. No, I don't think so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick D's number one choice. Here's a movie you're not going to see on many three by threes. The Human Stain. Oh. Oh yeah. This one is on the same lines as my number two, Grand Budapest Hotel, but a little more interesting. As a young man, Coleman Silk, his character's name, is played by Wentworth Miller. And he is convincing. What? He's convincing as a man who's turned his back on his mixed race heritage. That's another one. It's like I don't miss. Like I, that's the that's the, the outrageous reveal. I mean, I guess to yeah. Philip Roth, who's considerably older than us, maybe he. Uh, yeah. So that well, yeah. It's based on stay, a true story, isn't it? I don't probably. Uh, so let's see. So uh, he's convincing as a man who turns his back on his mixed race heritage. Uh, Miller himself has a black father and a white mother. How strange, then, that as an older man, he's played by Anthony Hopkins, who I have trouble of thinking as anything other than white aristocracy due to his Merchant Ivory movies. And yet the movie is about a character who successfully passes as white. I find this, Nick D says, uh, fascinating casting in the way it makes us confront our own attitudes about what it means to be white or black. Too bad about the movie, though. Kelly Wan loves Westworld, by the way. I just want the listeners to know. Speaking of it's really good. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Arthur Jin Vangelelli, number three, Atonement. Brioni Tallis. Mm. It sounds like a Star Wars character. Yeah, it does. Very good, Tom. Brioni <laughs> Tallis is shown in this movie at three different ages. 13, played by Sir Sharonin. 18, played by Romola Garay. Are we supposed to know who Romola Garay is? Uh, I know who yeah. Robert is. It means no worries. And Vanessa Redgrave plays the oldest version. What's notable about this trio is how – oh, here we go. What's notable about this trio is how weak the middle actress is compared, compared to the younger and older versions. Not to pick on Garai, but the difference in performance quality is very noticeable, and it hurts the second half of the movie. Hmm. Kelly Wan, do you concur? The Sanskrit word for war is desire for more cows. Kelly Wan, maybe you should uh, – uh, Is that what you asked me? No, maybe you should. Uh, what does is, what is Apone say to Hudson? Secure that shit, Hudson. Look into my eye. The Grand Budapest Hotel. Tony Revolori and F. Murray Abraham play the younger and older versions of Zero Mustafa. Hmm. Revolori, the younger actor, keeps everything very simple and allows Ray Fiennes to shine, acting mostly as an observer. In contrast, Abraham carries a lot more emotional heft while, rec- while recounting the movie's events to Jude Law. So that seemed to work for Arthur Jin Vallangelelli. Better than uh, and Shelley. Yeah, that's what I just said. Ludovinari Nebula. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is Arthur Ginvalala Jelly's number one pick. Chuck Barris. Name. Chuck Barris. Yeah. Chuck Barris is played yeah. by Sam Rockwell for most of the movie, but a young and mostly unknown Michael Sarah plays Barris during a few childhood scenes. What? I did not know that. That's a very good pick, Arthur. Uh. Uh, and for the final shot, Chuck Barris plays himself. I, I, I will admit that, that when you first were talking about the debt, Tom, I thought you said I thought you were saying that Sam Rockwell was playing a young. Um, oh, I might have 
I hope I didn't say that. I might have. You, that you, I don't think you did. I just okay. think I heard that. Yeah. Sam Well, you know, Sam Rockwell and Sam Worthington have a lot in common. They're both they're both actors. They're both male. They both have the same last name. They both have two legs. Uh, Wait, what? Uh, they they both, yeah, go ahead, Dingus. They both play clones. Oh, see, I got bleep for that. Wait, Terminator? Jesus. Yes. No, you're thinking of uh, where the guy turns into an ape and. Uh, <laughs> Wait, where's where's Sam Worthington a clone? Because Sam Worthington, I can imagine he's, he's pretty good as he's a clone. Not, he's not. Oh. Isn't he? What is he in the Terminator? Is he a Terminator in a Terminator movie? Yeah. He turns into Cal Worthington. That's like a that's like a clone. A Terminator's like a clone, kind of. That's true. It's a poor yeah, man's clone. It's a poor Rob, man's clone. Rob OT, which looks like a robot, uh, says, "Here's my top top three favorite body swap movies that aren't body swaps in a non body swap movie." Sounds like he's got this perfectly. He knows I like that. the word swap. Wait, what? Jai Courtney plays a big size version uh, of a twelve year old Kyle Reese. <laughs> <laughs> Genesis. Well, we thought we had it bad with uh, Sam Worthington, and then Rob brings up Jai Courtney. Right. Remember how good he was in Suicide Squad? Sam Worthington's not John Connor. Is he, he's a Terminator. Right, uh, 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 Anton Yelchin is an Anton Yelchin. That's the thing. We weren't going across movies, right? That's We're Reese. within the same movie. Yelchin's Reese and Jay Courtney's Reese. What's well, Rob isn't done explaining all this because Rob's right. number two pick, Arnold Schwarzenegger, plays an old version of a steroidal <sighs> Frankenstein in Terminator Genesis. And then finally, I think this is for you, Jason Clark is replaced by CG Magnet Man in <sighs> Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, no, no, sorry, Terminator Genesis. I'm sorry, I read it wrong. Terminator Genesis is what happened. He plays Nano Apes. Uh, that is good. They're, are they? They're not all the same Terminator, though, are they? Jai Courtney, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Jason Clark. No. So, uh, oh yeah, they're Rob, all time machines. Rob seems to know the, what's going down. He says, "Did I do it right? Shit, I'm going to three by three jail, aren't I?" Mm, it's a distinguished place, like the Westworld set. Hmm. Uh, although, Rob, no, Rob, this is getting you out of three by three jail. I'm letting you out because Rob says, seriously, I love that stupid Genesis movie and probably would not have paid any attention to it were it not for this podcast. Oh, what? Wait, he liked Jay Courtney? Or well, we liked, we liked Genesis. Like we were kind of into yeah. Schwarzenegger, then Schwarzenegger and Amelia uh, Clark. You stuff. were – Schwarzenegger and Amelia Clark were adorable. What are you talking about? You uh, were – They were lovely in comedy in a Terminator movie. Kelly Wan, how is it that you were into Westworld, but you didn't like that enjoyable, adorable part of Terminator Genesis? Dude, Westworld could happen. Okay, <laughs> we're living uh, heartbeat away from that. Chris Markinson, oh shoot, I can't. I saw the name, and I'm not going to read. Chris, sorry, but it's just it, you, you're way ahead of us. Chris saw Moonlight, and apparently that happens there. I can't read. Uh, yeah. That's it. Okay. Uh, number two, we're just moving on. We're moving on. Bruce Willis. Number two, Bruce Star Trek. Jacob Kogan, Zachary Quinto, and Leonard Nimoy suck at Kelly Wand. He doesn't write. Uh, but that's his subtext. Chris brought up Jacob Kogan. That's do, do, all do, I'm do. for. Number one. Oh, here's a good one. Man, Chris Markinson remembers movies. I loved Embrace of the Serpent, and I think that Nilbio Torres as young Karamakate and Antonio Bolivar as old Karamakate were both excellent. Chris, that's a very good point. That's a yeah. great one, Chris. Chris then yeah. says – oh, this is a great one too, uh, although he's worried it, it will run afoul. So is voice acting playing a character? Let me ask you guys that. Yeah, uh, of course. Oh, Totally. 
That's why okay. uh, Meryl Streep in uh, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is one of my favorite performances. Yeah. Hey, right. very good. Okay, in this case, Chris, you're fine, and I'm I'm down with this as well. Chris says. Uh, this would have been his number two if he wasn't concerned about it running afoul of the rules. But he says Charlie the Goat and Wahab Chaudhry as the voice of Black Phillip. <laughs> oh. I'm not sure if it's a body switch to Satan, which would disqualify it, or if it's a body morph, which should be fair game. No, that's a good one, uh, Chris Markinson. Yeah. We all approve. <laughs> Very much so. Very good, Chris. Was the goat's name really Charlie, or did Chris make that up? I like to think that it's good. That goat is really creepy, and if it has a, like an innocent, no, friendly was... name like Charlie, well, it's Black Phillip. But I'm just wondering oh, if, oh, shot, okay. if, if the actual goat, the actor's name was. Oh, Charlie. the actor's name was Charlie. That would be great. Yeah, that's a good point. That goat's the next Bond villain. <laughs> I see it that. Goes back to Harlem. <laughs> uh, for a runner-up, I have one that neither of you guys will know, and this is this is sort of my own domain. Dingus will appreciate this. Uh, do you guys know who Josh Hartnett grows up to be in Virgin Suicides? Uh, Tom's Jane. It's kind of like that. I mean, it makes no sense, but I respect that Sofia Coppola did it because you you don't know. You know, Virgin Suicides is a flashback, and Josh Hartnett's character we later find out like he's talking to the camera, like he's in rehab. He's a loser. Yeah, he's a loser. He's played by Michael Pere. Oh my God! Like oh, Michael Frakes has That's a couple good. of scenes just in the middle of nowhere where he's the adult, regretful Josh Hartnett. Uh, Wait, that's a number one. That's my number one. Oh, you're changing it? Okay, let me let me swap out. Uh, <laughs> what did you have? Interstellar, I believe. Um, <laughs> I had Sauron and Fellowship because no he one fights at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, go on. And then later, he's just a giant eye that can't wear a ring. So that's an actor morphing into another. Yeah, actor. the actor who played actor. Sauron at the beginning was way better than the eyeball who played. Sauron. <laughs> Dingus, you talking about my left foot made me think of what's that piano movie where Noah Taylor turns into Jeffrey Rush, a super young Noah Taylor. Like, oh, shine, shine. shine. Yeah, uh-huh. I loved what Noah Taylor did early on in that movie, and then uh, Jeffrey Rush comes along, and I sort of lost interest. That's a really great pick, and that's much much better than yeah. That's a good pick, man. I didn't even think of that. What else do you guys have? I remember liking the girl who grows up to be. Ellen Burstyn and Alice in, in uh, Interstellar, yeah, Mackenzie Foy. Oh, that's not a movie. It's a fucking <laughs> Inception fan fiction. <laughs> Same title. Uh, no one. So I can think of. A I have, couple. Oh, go ahead. Dingo. No one's arc. I have two. Yep. Uh, one is, um, and you can do this for a variety of Woody Allen movies, uh, but my favorite of these examples. But it's basically just a gag, so I, I couldn't fit it into either hate it or love it. It's Jonathan Monk playing Alfie Singer at age nine in the classroom. No Basically like, little kids that look like and have that Woody Allison affect, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but the other one isn't really my pick, um, and I didn't even think of this. Uh, it, you know, we were driving the other day, and I had a few people in the car, and they were asking about 3 by 3 and I said what it was. And my son went, um, who's the guy who died during one of those Fast and Furious movies? Wait, they didn't have a young version of him, though, did they? No, but one of his brothers had to play the part. Ah. So my son thought of Furious 7. Yeah. He hasn't seen it. He hasn't seen any of those movies. But the first thing that came to his mind was because we talked about that. We talked about it so much because we did the podcast and because I'm a big fan of Paul Walker. He realized that didn't one of his brothers or his brother have to – come in and, and, and I was like, yeah, but he had to do it kind of in the background, but you're right. 
technically, he had to play the part when Paul Walker died. Well, didn't they even like do some digital shenanigans over his face or something? I don't, I don't remember specifically, but yeah, yeah, I do remember like his brother came in and maybe they augmented him digitally or something like that. Yeah, right. So I just love that my kid is getting so is getting savvy enough about movies that he's like, "What about that movie you were talking about? That guy you like who died in that one movie?" <laughs> Any day, Dingus, through osmosis, he's going to become a big Dwayne Johnson fan. It's oh, going to happen. It's not going to need any osmosis. It's just going to happen full board. Uh, what about some young Harrison Fords? Surprised neither you jokers River brought Phoenix. this up. I, yeah. I love the River Phoenix thing. I yeah. Love yeah. He was great, and I didn't think of it until you made a joke about it earlier on. But I, I, I really love the way he does that. There's uh, a movie you guys haven't seen. You're not allowed to call yourself, and there's a lot of rules about what you can be a fan of and what you can't be based on whether or not I say you've seen certain movies. But neither of you is allowed to be a Blake Lively fan until you see Age of Adeline, which is a sort of a schmaltzy romance, but she's really good in it before you go, ugh. She's a good actor. She's her Age of Adeline performance is really good. With I'm some, 29 forever. It's terrible. But with no, no, with some cool <laughs> scenes with Ellen Burstyn, <laughs> Kelly Wand, go to three by three jail. Think about what you've done. Really? Yeah. I didn't just describe the movie. <laughs> well, here's the thing. In, in Harrison Ford was in love with her like when they were both younger, and then so old Harrison Ford meets her at the same age, and he's like, "What?" But he's way more subtle about it because he's Harrison Ford. So they have flashbacks with a young Harrison Ford played by, and this is ridiculous. Like if you were to go, you know, if you go online and you look up, uh, like the, the <laughs> just a guess. Oh my god! Why? I didn't see the movie. I'm just casting it in my head. Why would that ever happen? Because uh, it's like the Revolutionary War. No, if you look up like a monologue, like the Quint monologue in Jaws, you will see actors doing it as their like demo reel, and it's this is hugely entertaining. Just look up your favorite monologue on YouTube, and you'll find actors doing the monologue. And then posting their monologue, and most of them are terrible. So there's this guy who I think has done this frequently for Harrison Ford bits because he really looks like Harrison Ford. He's a young Canadian guy. His name is Anthony N. Gruber, and he's a spitting image of a super young Star Wars era Harrison Ford, and he has these videos of him doing monologues on the internet. So long, princess. That kind of thing. Yeah, they're just little snippets of here's me, and he sounds like Harrison Ford. So they got him – for Age of Adeline, and I don't even think he has any dialogue. Maybe he has a couple lines, but he's in a couple of scenes in Age of Adeline simply because the dude is an absolute spitting image for Harrison Ford. Like Shia LaBeouf? Ah, uh, well, they're not the same character. But you know there, there is a new young Harrison Ford. Do you guys know about yeah, this? Yeah, I don't understand it. Why? A new Han Solo? Yeah, I like the guy. He, I like him too, oh, but I don't, yeah, I don't want a new Han Solo. Well, it's got to happen sooner or later, Kelly. One, you want Han Solo to die with Harrison Ford, the guy from Hail Caesar, right? I do. Yeah, Austin Erlen. He's or Aaron Bach. Aaron Bach. Yes, thank you. Dennis. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Han Solo great. can't yeah. be recast though. Yeah. It's that that guy who looks like that. You know, Harrison Ford. That's Han Solo. Get a load. Think it's are you are you on board with this nonsense from Kelly? Can't recast him. That's dumb. No. Yeah. What? It's. Uh, I, I was, I wanna, I'm just. I was actually thinking now of. We know the, his fate. The, the mini, uh, the micro um, imitations. I think for us, Mark Quinn's one of Harrison Ford trying to stifle a sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, you and McGregor's Alec Guinness is a lot of fun. It's. I mean, there's there's 
you're desperate for anything that's not terrible in those movies. So, like that's no, one, right? I think, I think the that's way he the does same the movie, voice, yeah. the way he does the voice is perfect. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's not. Uh, yeah, they're not. Same? Yeah. Okay. You didn't. Enough. You didn't. But I. But I just figured. I mean, we could right. have just done James Bonds as a whole category if we were. Ooh. Do that. That's another three by three. Yeah. He did be recast. Favorite James Bond actors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, no one mentioned Lost Highway. Whatever the hell's going on there. Yeah. Hey, uh, Bill Spaltazar Getty, or is it the other way around? That's not. No. But it is. It is. What are you talking about? No. It's not the same character. Isn't it Dingus? Like you, you're. Yeah. I would think you're not technically. Dingus. Is one of them. That's, not what, real. that's what the confusion of that movie is, because it seems that the character suddenly flips to a new actor midstream. But they just have the same character. head wound. Kelly Wan, I think you didn't understand Lost Highway even worse than the rest of the world. Okay, look. Johnny Darko is fucking bullshit. <laughs> how do you feel about the sequence? Yeah, how do you feel about S. Darko? It's the Book of Shadows of the Donnie Darko trilogy. Kelly Wan, what I would like you to do is tell the listeners <laughs> what 3x3 three three to ponder over the course of this next week and how to submit their choices. Okay, I have a dumb one, but instead we're going to do this one. <laughs> so... This is three movies that converted you to an actor or a director. But what if we're not actors or directors? Can we still submit choices? If you'd like to submit a choice to what I just said and not what Tom said, send it to 3x3 at quarter to three dot com and I will misread it on the air. It sounds anime. It will obviously not matter matter because it's always the same actors and directors and you like it all. I would just like to say to the listeners that I hope many of you were inspired by anime. No, it's never (laughs) happened. You don't even need to write in. I was kidding. That's not even a real address. I'm going to watch so much anime just hoping to get converted. You can't get converted to anime. Uh, Kelly, I don't want to to address this too much, but just to maybe help me and Dingus, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired this topic maybe? Uh, and let me just say, let me just say what I'm getting. Like you talk about, oh, it's hard to act, and you, I don't think, like you're a writer, you, you don't consider yourself a director. Like, how are you going to participate in this? Like, what made, well, yeah, just what gave rise to this? Well, I realized that I didn't like Mel Gibson movies until the tapes that he put out. <laughs> so that's when I went, oh wait, he's actually good. He's a good actor. He's a good person. Oh, wait. That converted you to think someone is good? Yeah. I'm so confused because it sounded like you said what converted you into – To liking. Not into. To liking an actor or director. I yeah. did not. Something okay. that swayed your opinion. So that Man, I totally hated that. so-and-so until such-and-such. Such. I thought, Kelly Wan, you were asking us to talk about what made us – Embark careers as or actors director. or directors. Oh, no, I'm not I thought your joke was so funny. No, he's he's asking you to. He what, sounded like what, he was kidding. What swayed you to like somebody? Kelly, one, do you see how little sense I think you make sometimes now? But now that I've said Mel Gibson, you understand who I think I am. All right. So what converted you? And and what? Okay, good enough. I, I like I I can work with this, Kelly Wand. Well, you can do what you think I said if you prefer. <laughs> it was Roy Scheider and Jaws. I was like, man, I want to – whatever that guy does. is Because you sounded intrigued. Like, oh, what did make me an actor? I was being polite. Oh, really? 
We will also see Manchester by the Sea, uh, <gasps> Kenneth Lonergan's new movie. Uh, don't, it, I don't know if it's out near you. It should be limited release-ish. But see that. Join us for that next week. And if you see it, have any thoughts on it, we'd love to hear them and include them on the air. Send those also to 3x3 at quarter3.com with a separate subject header from the movies that converted you into liking a director or actor. And we will discuss that next week. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Christian Mritzky. It's Christian Morosky. And we also had Kelly Wand. I hear that new Warren Beatty movie, Really Bonnie and Died. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. Oh, that was the number one song. Think about the oh, when the Supreme Court heard the case, yes. I was looking up, like, was it why they decided the way they did? Like, it they could be. Like, you could imagine the justices listening to this thinking, being inspired. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, the interracial couples, that's ridiculous. Virginia can't do that. Right. But that I don't was also the week why... Planet Apes came out. Are you serious? I think so. 1967. Yeah. Right. April 10th, 1967. Yep, that was the day Planet of the Apes came out. I just looked it up. Do you think this song affected Planet? Yeah, I think huh. so. Because they were just like, that's maybe we don't want that kind of future. <laughs> so weird to think back to a time when I used to deify the Supreme Court in my brain. Who said oh, that? Deify. I was, I was like, what does deify stand for? Right. Deify. I, I, I used to hold them above reproach, and now it's just another tool. What? thing is, think about you singing this song to the Supreme Court. Spe- specifically Clarence Thomas. I'm doing the guitar bit from Airplane, and he's in the gurney. <coughs> what about have when guys... Ethel Merman played Ethel Merman? Before we talk about Airplane, have you guys seen Kate McKinnon's Ruth Bader Ginsburg? No. It's awesome stuff. Really? Where what what? They do get they do bits on Weekend Update where she's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh okay. It's kind of hot, which is weird. Is it weird to say it's hot? It's it's not hot. I know. I, I, no, I love about that. I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I love the legal system. No matter how they toss the dice, it had to be the only one for me. I've heard Gene Hackman's latest one's a real conversation killer. Timing's still off by about two degrees. I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years. We were afraid if the Queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to make! You know better. No, I don't.